it bloody is. I tell you, living in the country, you just see carnage like that on a regular basis. I see dead badgers the other day. I felt really sorry for Raf. <laughs> <laughs> How? What killed? Why was the badger like just hit by cars? Um, yeah, there's, there's, you get dead badgers by the roadside in two ways in the countryside. One of them is hit by a car. The other one is killed by a farmer and dumped there. So it looks like it was hit by a car because there's restrictions on killing badgers. <laughs> yeah. Hello, my name is Declan Deneen. Welcome to Checkpoints. This is a show about video games, the people who play them and the people who make them. Each episode of guests on the show talks about the games that have shaped their life in one way or another. Games that have inspired them, games that have forged connections, and games that have soothed wounds. My guest on today's show is Tony Coles. Now, Tony's a, a freelance video game writer, and uh, previously worked in in video game PR, and was also one of the the co-founders of the uh, the greatest video game review website, Affectionate Diary. And Tony's a friend of mine. Um, this is a really fun kind of meandering chat. I really enjoyed it, and he's also like. You might already have heard, actually, like last week I did a special autosave episode all about performance, uh, and I cut uh, part of this conversation I had with Tony into that episode because we both share very similar opinions of, of the potential of games and the kind of our love of, of game mechanics over you know any kind of story or narrative-driven games. I mentioned a second ago that Tony was one of the co-founders of Affectionate Diary, which is one of my favorite video game websites of all time, and one of the reasons I loved it so much is because it was just so passionate and enthusiastic about games. And this comes through in my, my chat with Tony. It's really refreshing to hear somebody just constantly um, extolling the virtues of how amazing and mind-blowing uh, video games can be. It's, it's a really fun chat. As always, we uh, very much appreciate you listening to the show. Please do rate and review it on iTunes uh, if you're so inclined. It is a genuine, massive help Um to, to increasing the the audience of the show and just tell a friend if you if you know anyone who thinks uh, who might be into it just pass on uh, pass on a message if you'd like to get in touch you can email the show it's checkpointspodcast at gmail.com it's also at checkpoint show on twitter and forward slash checkpoints podcast on facebook it's very important to have consistent branding um hope you enjoyed last week's episode the auto saves so these are my I mean, they're basically a life well wasted fanfic. A uh, life well wasted was an amazing podcast by by Robert Ashley, who I am hoping to get on the show at, at some point. And those are my kind of uh, lo-fi versions of those. But I really enjoy doing them, and I hope you get a, get a kick out of them. They are a little bit self indulgent, but whatever. I'm doing a podcast. They're all pretty self indulgent. <laughs> anyway, uh, I'll be back next week with a new episode and a new guest. But until then, I hope you enjoy the show. Thanks for downloading it. Let's get on with it. No, no, you sound uh, you sound fine. You sound fine. Good. Well, let's right. Let's let's do let's do this properly then, Tony. So I'll do uh, I'll do my intro. Um, yes. So Tony Coles, thank you so much for coming on the show. If you don't mind, would you introduce yourself? Yeah, hi. I'm uh, Tony Coles. I'm currently a freelance games writer. Um, I used to be video games PR, but I hated it, and now I'm much happier. I did not know you hated it. How come? Because it's horrible. It's a horrible job. It was just um, my biggest sellout of my entire life, really. I just did it to get money. 
and um, to work in the industry as well. That was the other good point. But generally speaking, towards the end, I, I hated that job with such a passion. It was awful. Is that like, I mean, I don't want you to get in trouble or anything, but is that purely your opinion? Or do you think everyone in games PR is like, this is a bit shit, isn't it? <laughs> Depends on what clients you get. Right, okay. <laughs> I think that's what it comes down to. If you've got like amazing stuff that people already want to know about, then it's fabulous. And uh, but if you've got stuff that isn't so amazing that they have to be informed about to even understand, it becomes quite a slog. And then if it's shit and the client thinks it's fucking amazing, then you're just in the whole world of hell. And uh, <laughs> that was kind of what what it was more like towards the end. But um, they can't think like I I I mean you you hear stories like that and. You know, it's the case with like with any anything anyone creates. Nobody sets out to make something bad, right? Yeah. Everybody does, especially stuff like games and movies and things. There's so much, so many moving parts, so many people involved. Nobody's nobody wants to make something shit. No. So do you really think that they they're just blinkered through the process of of doing it and like, no, this is good. <laughs> it was hard to say, really. One of the things I did notice that was really like fascinating um, was there was a lot of things that were sort of taken on and like contracts were signed um, for stuff without really understanding whether or not it would be good or not. So it was difficult to get a game these days that's truly shit. Yeah. But there's a lot of games that are mediocre. And the problem with especially the games media is they don't really care about mediocre games. They only care about games that are really good or astonishingly shit because, you know, they still do quite like to stick a knife into something every now and again. Um, like I think we saw with the Ghostbusters game, right? And then yeah. uh, it's good fun then, to write about shit things. Yeah, people love that. Yeah, and um, and I think also because they can't criticize the stuff, you know. It's, it was what's interesting is you get games that are functionally great but are lacking in other areas, and it's hard, and they don't really get criticized for the lack. Games tend to be like reviewed more just purely functionally. Like, can you play it? Is it good fun to play? Yeah. Well, then it's an eight, you know. Um, but getting back to that stuff about how shit games end up or mediocre games end up being in the market. It's often down, I think, people putting their reputations on the line by signing contracts to take on a certain number of titles. And then the fulfillment is, well, is that's what you've got. You've got a bunch of games. And whether they're good or not, it's kind of irrelevant. You've still got to sell them. You've got and, to just you know, fulfill yeah. your contract, essentially. Yeah, totally. And I certainly, I certainly remember working with a few publishers that were like that. And there are other people who think that just having units in the retail channel is all that counts. So it doesn't really matter whether the game's amazing or not. They just want to have stock going out and onto the shelves. And that's kind of their job, almost, is to make sure that happens. Yeah. And the performance is secondary, almost, to some people, or so it seemed. And there was certainly uh, this kind of idea that it was down to people's reputations. So they would sign up with the developer, take on a game, without really understanding what makes a good game, and then have to stick to it because they'd signed the contract but that <laughs> like that that sounds like totally absurd to me like are the people signing the contracts like not is this kind of like people who own businesses as opposed to people who want to make yes. games yeah yes there's, a, there's definitely a difference between it but i think it's one of the things you see about the grander corporate structure of publishers these days anyway most people at the top started off as salesmen so it's it's that kind of a it's a different kind of culture to what you'd expect um and i think nearly everybody that's like got a big ceo position has some kind of background in sales these days yeah 
And that's kind of where it comes from. Really. The, the point is the sale. It's not really about whether it's a good product or bad. It's whether or not you can get it on sale and sell enough that you don't go bankrupt. And so I, how, I, huh? how do you deal with that then? How do you deal with that as like, you know, your, your PR, you're here to promote this game. Like, how do you... How do you oh, was, reconcile that with yourself? Is that just why it's like hell? I was, I, no, I was offensively unprofessional. Was <laughs> my approach was to basically be honest with the journal and be dishonest with the client more often than not. Um, but sometimes with the client, depend on, it depended on the client. If the client was amenable and they knew that they had a bag of shit, then you could say, this is a bag of shit. And they would go, yes, it is. But what can you get? And then other clients would be like, how dare you say my game's awful? But really what counted for me, I think what really counted was to actually say to the journalist, look, this isn't great, but the third level's really pretty or something like that, that there's some merit there. Find something in it, yeah. Yeah, and I like just being politely requesting they don't go too hard on it. Because I don't think we'd ever, I never ever pushed the other side, which was this game's like good, but can you make sure it gets a 10? That was never really part of my career. But saying, you know, you might well give this game a four, but really it's a six if you stick with it was kind of more where we would be. Okay, okay. Do you th- Has there ever been like, I mean, I don't know an awful lot about PR, but is there ever, has anyone ever had a game that's like so shit they've kind of, you know, um, steered into it like and thought, right, we can really push this as, as an absolute piece of shit in the same way you like people have screened into the room and stuff? <laughs> no. No, I don't think so. I've never seen that. Like I said, there's someone's ego on the line with every single game that gets signed. There are people's egos on the line. And um, the higher up the chain they are, the more important the ego, really, and protecting the ego to a certain extent. And I do remember there was one company that was American, and rather than call their games um, good or shit, they called them uh, weak and strong. And so they would say, this is quite a weak product. And you'd know immediately, right, so it's awful. (laughs) <laughs> and we have to tell people it is awful. Um, but then again, with the journalists, transparency was such a big deal, um, especially at the time that we really started getting going in PR, which was around about 2004, 2005, 2006. Yeah. That transparency, weirdly, transparency had become a bit more of an important issue, and you couldn't really confabulate. And I think the current body of writers then could see straight through whatever flim-flam you wanted to throw at them. So it was very easy to say, if you took a preview of a game in and it was dreadful, to then say, well, yeah, but all this will be fixed by the time the review copies you, you know, because you're trying to get a positive preview. And there was kind of in that era, there was neg- never, ever a negative preview. I don't know if you ever noticed that. They were always either neutral or positive. And this was kind of almost the most important part of the whole process was naming yeah. the um, you don't really see many previews now. Is that it's kind of like uh, I suppose that's all gone on YouTube. It's a bunch of kids yeah. playing games. Yeah, well, in a way, the, the kind of the critical thing. Or is maybe just, I just don't read them anymore. Maybe I've just changed. You get a few. You get you, you do get a few these days, but like they, the kind of PR these days for the big AAAs is hyper controlled. And so, if you wanted to do a, uh, you're probably going to put all your budget into the review event than you would a preview event, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and also that kind of there's a kind of a bit of a uh, a bit of a kind of I don't really, really know the word for it really a bit of a contradiction in the sense that they know now that the media are a lot more aware of being manipulated into a particular position but at the same time they know they can only have review if they go to the event so there's a kind of a weird dancing around each other thing that goes on I think yeah 
But yeah. I mean, I, I, certainly you see it a lot more um, disclosed as well. Like, that seems to be like a new thing. Everybody is really yeah. breaking down, or oh, these are our relationships, because of internet yeah. trolls and stuff, I guess. But I, I mean, in many ways, it is, at least it's, it's keeping everybody honest to an extent. <laughs> it gets a bit much when like they bought me two drinks yeah <laughs> it's like that his uh, itemized bill from our meeting before yeah, yeah well we didn't pay for our travel and things <laughs> like that i mean i don't really i don't i don't think that's particularly persuasive i think the kind of the choice of hotel you're put up in might be yeah um, and whether or not they they showered you in goodies and things like that um but i mean i don't know i mean like going back to what i was saying about the the transparency thing um it became when I was really get, got my feet together in PR. It really seemed like you had to be honest. You couldn't really pull the wool any over anyone's eyes, and it didn't help the client. So even though you you'd sometimes go back to the client and lie to them, um, which is kind of complete anathema in, in public relations, it was actually easier to get the job done properly to do it that way, <laughs> uh, and to make sure they got the coverage that would kind of satisfy them rather than to uh, lie to a journo and end up with them thinking you're an absolute dick and that the clients are like horrifically corrupt obviously is that not more because you you you'd be more um friendly is probably the wrong word but you know you'd be more sympathetic with the the journos than the the big publishers <laughs> to an extent I mean, you would like of course there's much more of a kindred spirit with the the journos yeah um and also, it, to be honest, it really did depend on the client. So it, it, do, it, was, it isn't like game publishing is full of just, you know, automatons and salesmen. Oh, of course there are, like, proper gamers in there as well. And I think if we found like a good, a kind of like a good level with them, but then if they were experienced in gaming, they knew exactly where their products at. So, you know, you could be a lot more candid with them about what their chances were in terms of preview and review and things like that. And we certainly had games where, you know, we all agreed this should not get reviewed <laughs> because it's going to get savaged. Um, and that would just be the best option for everyone, you know. <laughs> That's a, a hell of a, a pitch to somebody in a strategy meeting. <laughs> yeah, Let's make really... sure hardly anybody sees this. <laughs> yes. and make the cover a little bit like another game and then maybe <laughs> someone will buy it by accident. God, yeah. No, you do see some of that. I remember having... God, I remember seeing one game's cover art in advance and it being so shit unbelievably shit that i actually had to send an email to the artist and say i think this is really quite awful and um they sent back saying um because it didn't follow the rules there was a particular character on the cover okay. and they'd drawn it in their own style they hadn't followed the rules of how that character looks and so i said you haven't followed the rules people are going to hate this and they're going to like you know it's going to really affect the way it's like seen in the media and um and the artist wrote back saying i don't care I, I i just draw whatever i want i do it by my way and then lo and behold i told the client this as well and they just went ahead with it and uh, lo and behold it got savage the cover-up people were like saying it's the most disgusting thing i've ever seen in my life and uh i felt a bit i felt a bit vindicated but i also felt totally toothless you yeah. know that was the other thing as well I'm so you do desperate feel like to know more details but i will uh, for the sake of your your reputation tony i'll i'll hold back <laughs> what's left of it <laughs> what's left of it yeah um right well let's 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 go back then tony so mm. uh, if you can remember what was your very first experience of a video game yeah it's really vivid for me it must have been 1978 and it was space invaders arcade um it was in uh this club 
like a social club that my mum and dad went to on an army base in Germany. Um, okay, and- so where, where are you? Like, where did you, where, where are you based? Like, where were you born and all that stuff? Uh, I was born in Berlin um, in a military hospital. I my did dad- not know yeah. that. Did you not know that? I didn't know. Ah, I was born in Berlin in a military hospital. And it was, I think my my mum told me it was the hospital where Rudolf Hess died. <laughs> it was like all these like, deep World War II connections because it's this military hospital in, in the middle of Berlin. And the weird thing about that is because it's military land, it counts as UK territory. So okay. my, pass- my passport says born Berlin, place of birth, UK. That's weird. Yeah, it's deep. And it caused me a lot of trouble trying to get into America. But it was only because he was like, why? Why? And I, <laughs> and I explained because my dad was in the army and then they were fine. But they were okay, fine. that's fine. Yeah. But um, then I ended up moving from Berlin to this place called Lipstadt, which is kind of central Germany, more closer towards um, France. And uh, there's this massive kind of faceless army base with a US base jammed on the side and stuff. All these big Cold War kind of like... Um, melting pots where it was there there to stem the tide of the presumed soviet advance okay yeah and i had a big had a social club and um this was like just called it the club and that's where everyone would go and hang out especially on sundays and so it was probably a sunday in the middle of summer or something i'm not quite sure if the dates tally up for when space invaders was released um but uh, i remember the, there was this big tall cabinet thing and of course, I didn't know what they were, yeah. but everyone was gathered around it. There were like loads of people like making a fuss over it. And uh, and I remember my dad and one of his mates playing it. And I went over to see what it was because obviously it was making incredible noises. And I still remember the side, the, the, the cabinet art on the side is like one of the most evocative bits of gaming artwork for me. Just yeah, that the big sort of fuzzy alien and stuff. That big fuzzy alien with the white kind of outline and the, the uh, moon craters and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, and I remember he lifted me up so I could see the screen. And, uh, yeah, that's definitely the first time I ever saw a video game. And so were, were they like, I'm assuming they were like families and stuff on this base. So it wouldn't be like you were the only kid. This would be like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and that would have been, I imagine, like the first thing you'd ever seen like that. Because it was one of the first ever things like that. It was totally. I mean, I don't remember seeing any of the home Pong units or anything like that. Um, which I, I don't know if they would have been around because my dad was always in into electronics because he yeah. was a royal electrical mechanical engineer. Okay. So he was into electronics massively as well as like um, tank engines, which is like his main job. And, this explains um, so much about you, Tony. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? It really does. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I don't remember any of that kind of stuff. But we do really distinctly remember Space Invaders just, boom, arriving like the monolith in 2001. Absolutely. And like, just being like, and uh it just being this massive thing that everyone was obsessed with um and it became it, and that's the thing as well about space invaders at the time it became a completely universal experience and the fact that everybody pretty much everybody knew what it was even if they weren't remotely interested in games i say still today that's probably it's one of the few kind of universal games along with like pac-man and mario and stuff yeah I, i'd say mario even less to be honest i think really you, you do, it is really about Space Invaders and Pac-Man, I think, are the two, like, true, true universal icons. So you're saying your dad was, like, picking you up and stuff, so I'm assuming you were quite young. Did you play it? Yeah, I would have been four. So, no, I, I kind of in my memory, I think I played it, but I think I'm just making that up. I think I'll probably, probably just, just the attract mode. Yeah, because I should think it would, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I think it would have been, like, you know, 10 Phoenix to play, and that would have been quite a bit of money for a four-year-old. 
So um, I doubt I actually got to play it. I don't. I can't even remember the first game I actually played. Really, um, that would probably have been some anonymous arcade game sometime between '78 and '82. <laughs> okay. So did, did, uh, when was what was the first kind of home console you got then, or home computer? Well, hilariously, the first home console we got, which would have been, I think, about 82, was Atari VCS with Combat and Space Invaders. So oh, amazing. I played a lot of Space Invaders <laughs> on that. And that's why I remember playing that a lot, playing a lot of Combat and a lot of Space Invaders, but getting quite bored of those two after a while as well. And, um, and, and was, it, was it for you, though? Like, Was that like your console or was it a family thing? Or? No, it was the family's. It stayed in the living room and it was under the telly. And there's only one telly. So, you know, playtime, of course, was completely restricted to when Coronation Street wasn't on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but, things like that. But did uh, everyone play? I think so. Yeah. I think everyone had a go. I'm not sure if everyone played. My mum is quite into games. And um, I think she played Space Invaders a bit. And she played a bit. I remember her playing Combat with me and then me playing it with my sister as well. Um, and I remember playing quite a bit of Space Invaders and just being mind boggled by all of the game variations that are on that car, there's like it's over a hundred. Like they really squeezed that that Space Invaders. They like rinsed it for. I struggle to name five possible variations. <laughs> well, you should check it out on a VCS emulator. It's, it's nuts. There's like ones with invisible invaders and like invisible bullets and invisible shields and invisible ship, and then loads of various difficulty settings and stuff. Um, and they really mixed it up. I mean, they really put value into that cart which is quite unusual i think so you're saying this was for everyone though but was it like did it gradually become your thing no no it just stayed under the tv until it got really dusty after a while i think we when i got bored of both the games i didn't really play it again and um and then i, I think that it must have been about 83 84 my dad actually bought a proper computer into the house and that was kind of more pushed towards my way okay um, but my dad was a bit of a dick in because <laughs> he hated the ZX Spectrum. You know, he absolutely despised it. Why? He didn't, didn't consider it to be a real computer because it didn't have a real keyboard. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? But what? Like what? I don't understand that logic. Like what? I know exactly. He just he didn't he just didn't like the rubber keys on the like the original um, ZX Spectrum, the 16K one. And I don't think he'd even seen a ZX80 or 81. But there was something about those keys that really upset him. And also, I think he also had a bit of a thing against Clive Sinclair. So I think he thought he was a bit creepy. Like personally and, against Clive yeah, Sinclair. Like, yeah, I had a personal grudge against him. <laughs> but by that time, he was a policeman in Cambridge. So who knows? Maybe he came up against Clive Sinclair. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe he knows something we don't. In a gambling den or something like that. <laughs> you know what Clive's like these days. <laughs> so who knows? He's not told. I should ask him about that now, actually. Um, so yeah, so we got we had to get a computer for a proper keyboard, and Dad's choice, um, which I presume came from like fucking Maplin or something, was a Texas TI ninety nine. Oh, that nice. Yeah, like super obscure, woefully undersupported in the market. <laughs> it came with it came with one cartridge, so we had one game, and that was Space Invaders. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it was Texas Instruments' idea of Space Invaders, and it was actually a bit more. It was kind of straight up Space Invaders, but it added more invaders. There were more variant in the in the aliens would come in. As you got through like, I think six levels, there'd be like a whole new set of aliens. And that would be like super exciting to get that far. But obviously it was kind of monotonous. Yeah, that doesn't sound and, good uh, at all. 
yeah but, so no. were you like uh were you aware of the wider sort of video game world like were you furious that you couldn't get a spectrum or was this all just mm. in retrospect i wouldn't say i was furious at the time but i mean by that by that point i'd say about 84 i mean games were really starting to become quite the thing yeah i mean i think that was about when that's about when they were being sold in david smith and boots and that wasn't it yeah um, it's, there was never really the same kind of crash here as there was in america i don't think no because of the home computers basically yeah, no, absolutely not. And I think it's just been like a pretty linear curve, isn't it, in terms of like growth. And I think 83, 84, 85, that's kind of when it really started to become a retail phenomenon, wasn't it? And it started, the main retailers were actually selling it. And um, so I could go in and I could just see loads of games that I couldn't play. <laughs> and I remember, I think still when we had Texas, which when I saw the first game that I lusted after and really needed to have but couldn't have. And uh that was um, Jet Set Willy on the ZX Spectrum. And, and where it, would you have seen that? Like just in magazines or like house. on a demo pod or something? No, it was on a mate's. It was around a mate's house. Oh, okay, okay. They had a Spectrum. They had a they had a 16K plus the RAM pack that got way too hot really quickly, and you could only play for an hour before it like crashed everything. Um, though and I remember you reading touch it at all, obviously. Well, I, I remember reading you could put like a, a pint of milk on it and it would keep it cool for another hour, <laughs> <laughs> which was like pro technique. Um, but they had, um, yeah, they had uh, Jet Set Willy, and I remember playing it and just being like, oh my God, this game's incredible, especially compared to everything I'd seen before, really. Um, even games that they'd had, the, the, the pre-Spectrum stuff, and I hadn't even, I hadn't played Manic Miner at that point. I didn't know anything about Manic Miner, so my first entry was straight into Jet Set Willy. And this was kind of, I thought it was like the most amazing game ever, because it just was so vast, and yeah. there was so much to explore. And um, and you got like I think you got like nine lives, you got like a shitload of lives when you're used to having three, and so when it was my go to play, I didn't really care about picking up objects or anything. I just cared about finding new rooms and just exploring this like crazy fucking mansion, and um, I think that's really like defined what I look for in games right up to today. So I think the reason why I absolutely adore Bethesda open world games. It's because of Jet Set Willy and just wanting to explore and go further and find out what the next room is. Yeah, and all there's there's always somewhere new to go. There's always something new to try and stuff. Yeah, and I was always kind of like thought, oh, what happens when that game finishes and there's no more rooms left to find? Like, you know, then you've actually got to go back and, and like play it properly and pick everything up, and that just seems so boring compared to finding new stuff. So, did you ever kind of move on from the Texas? Or did you just yes. live kind of vicariously through friends? <laughs> there was a bit of vicariousness. And it was quite cool because our friends, the friend group at the time, um, had a really varied smattering of, of machines. So what, there were quite a few Spectrums, but then a couple had uh, Commodore 64s and another couple had Amstrads. And I think one person had an Atari, the 400. Um, but we didn't really ever see that very much. But I remember my mates... And you had the Texas instrument as well. Like, don't, I had the Texas Don't put yourself down, they told me. Yeah, yeah, that was, you know, super cult. And it was, <laughs> you know, it was silver, man. It was like, it was a cool-looking machine. Like, it shouldn't be dissed. It was a good machine, but it just poorly supported. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I got to experience that kind of general mainstream quite, quite easily um, and got to see exactly how nice the, six, the C64 could be and how funky the spectrum is and stuff and how colorful the Amstrad was. That was the one thing that always stood out, um, especially in later years. But um, anyway, uh, yeah, one Christmas, I think maybe even just only a year after getting the Texas Instruments, um, 
my parents bought me an actual computer, so it was like specifically mine. And that was a Commodore Plus Four. Okay. If you know those, I don't know. I don't. Um, well, they're kind of like Commodore decided to make a cut down, cheap version of, this, of the Commodore sixty four called the C sixteen. So I think it uses the same processor, but a lot less custom chips. Actually, um, no, I think this came up on the show before, and I said yeah. I didn't know anything about it, and then uh, a mutual friend, Benny, texted me and said those were the computers that we had in school. So yes, apparently sure. I did have those in school. I'm sure Benny had a C16, or he talked about it. Yeah. But anyway, I... they did. so Commodore released a 64K version called the Plus 4, and that's what I got. And I think what happened was is they released it and realized no one was going to buy it, and they'd sold it for like 75 quid. So it was dirt cheap. And um, and I remember getting that one Christmas and it came in 10 games and it was mine. And um, and then we realized pretty quickly it was being supported at retail as well. So you could go into Boots and buy games for it in Boots. And that was just a game changer. So then I had a machine I could actually enjoy and spend money on and stuff like that. Yeah. And, and like, you know, not to... Um you know uh sully your name or anything but that's also when piracy happens so you know everybody oh, yeah. was pirating everything so you could you could get a massive library if if you were that way inclined well if you knew anybody else that well a that is also true yeah <laughs> so you keep going but, for the niche maybe not um and i had one friend that had one and we did swap games between us but though but it was only us two so we didn't really get any vast collections or anything it wasn't like the spectrum heads who were just out of control yeah. like you know, everyone was alarmed by Napster, and that was they had nothing on Spectrum Heads in 1985. <laughs> they were caning it, and especially 86, I think, was probably the, the maddest year. And um, were you tribal about your your Commodore though? Were you like, no, this is uh, this is the real shit? No, I knew it was rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> well, it wasn't a rubbish machine, but I knew it wasn't. Yeah, there was no chance trying to compete in a you know Spectrum versus C64 argument. Because you weren't ever going to win with what you had, um, but uh, no, there were some amazing games on it. There was one game on it that completely blew my mind. Again, like far, like still, I still remember it as one of the most impactful games I ever played. Um, do you want me to tell you about it? I do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, funny enough, I remember the the, the really cool thing about um, going shopping for games at that time was. I wasn't really reading any magazines. I didn't have any prior knowledge of what I was going to buy. And I felt really blessed that the Plus 4 was um, catered for by um, Mastertronic. Okay. So you could get like 199 games for it. And uh, so that's like two weeks pocket money. So every two weeks you can buy a game. And that's amazing when you're like eight or nine. Um, but then you could save up money and like buy a full price game. And I remember actually it was WH Smith's had this game on the the plus four shelf and it had a uh the front cover was like a view from inside a cockpit of this green vector graphics landscape and it was called mercenary and he okay. flipped it over and the screenshot was wireframe graphics and uh i just thought holy fucking shit because i'd seen elite i knew all about elite at this point yeah but this was like on the ground and it was like it's like what what and so I bought it. I think it was about £8.95. And I took it home. But somehow, miraculously, there was a Plus 4 version. Because originally it was uh, an Atari game and then Commodore 64. And then I think there was a Plus 4 version and eventually Spectrum and Amstrad. Um, and even the 16-bits got it as well. Um, and I got it home and I played it. And it, it's mind-fucking. It's absolutely mind-fucking is, is any way I can describe it. 
And like, what the fuck is going on? This game is incredible. You start off, you're in a spaceship flying through space. Yeah. And you have a little computer at the bottom called Benson. And he's like telling you that like, everything's fine. You're flying through space. All go, all's going great. And all he goes, all of a sudden, he's like, no, there's a problem. Oh my God, we're going to crash. And then a planet appears in this star field. And you fly towards it, a big green blob. You fly towards it, and then you're flying and flying deeper and deeper to the planet. It fills the screen, and then this wireframe kind of like uh, cityscape is viewed from above, the, the, like the uh, the road network appears, yeah. and you're spiraling towards it, and then goof, you crash on the ground, and you look up, and uh, there's your wrecked spaceship, and then there's a rotating radar, and there's a spaceship on a runway, and you can look around, and you can move around this 3D world. It's like... On the Commodore Plus 4, that was unprecedented. It was like, I can't believe you can actually get a game that does this. It I've was, never heard of that game, and that sounds oh, absolutely mind-blowing. It is absolutely mind-blowing, considering when it was done as yeah, well. absolutely. It is, and it's the work of one man as well, this guy called Paul Wokes, who's like an utter genius, and um, it's amazing. So anyway, Benson then tells you that the spaceship across the road is um, available for sale. And that you can uh, buy it and you've got enough money. So obviously you buy it and uh, you get into the spaceship. And um, there's quite a good control um, instruction manual that comes with it. And it tells you, like, you control the speed just with the, the numbers, okay. uh, top row numbers. So, like, one is slow and nine is fast. So I sit in it and press nine and whoosh. It's, like, <laughs> pushing off across the ground. And you pull back on the joystick and you're fucking flying around this city. And these buildings are coming towards you. Like, it's not densely populated or anything. But it's still this idea that this environment that you can actually fly around in with wireframe buildings um, is just mind-boggling. And then, in, you know, eventually I slowed down. I didn't go flying at top speed all the time. Nine for life. Yeah, for life. <laughs> uh, um, you get a message telling you to go to this location, and um, and it's got like a grid coordinate system, uh, like X and Y. And it tells you to go to 0906. And you go to 0906, and it's like this funny cage. That's all you can see on the ground. And so you kind of maneuver the spaceship into this uh, into this cage, and uh, you can press the E button for elevator. And uh, you press E, and then like you're in a lift going down in, into the underground, and it emerges in this big hangar. And you're like, what? I couldn't believe that it had not only did it have the surface, it had an underground as well. And you could hop out of your ship and walk down these corridors and explore these huge, like, complexes underground. It was, like, mind-boggling. Was this, like, procedurally generated or was it crafted? (laughs) No, it's all in there. It's all, like, preset, pre-rigid, pre-designed. And it's uh, the the objective of the game is to escape, which is really cool. That's one of my favourite objectives in any game is to just get away rather than to, you know, defeat evil for once and for all or something tiresome. I think the idea of just getting away is probably more appealing. And um, that was the objective in Mercenary. And so you kind of thread together this idea that this world is under a civil war and there are all these different locations. turns out there's loads of, there's quite a few underground complexes that you can discover and fly to. There's objects you can pick up and, and stuff like that. You can pick up, there's a thing that looks like a face and you pick it up and it tells you their sights and suddenly you get like a HUD on your vision and you can see where you're looking and stuff. This is blowing my mind, Tony. This is amazing. The other thing that's really amazing about it, which is really clever, 
is that the um, locked doors are geometric shapes, so they're like pentagons and triangles and stuff. So like open, like unlocked doors are just normal rectangles. Yeah. But locked doors are different polygons, and you just have to find the key is that shape polygon. It was like so beautifully elegant that you know you'd be looking around at all these pentagonal doors, and then suddenly you find the pentagon. And you're like, word, I can go through all these doors now. <laughs> and, um, and that kind of exploration was like totally the watchword of that game. And it was so beautifully done. And it was kind of weirdly atmospheric, even though it felt all a bit haunted and a bit empty. Yeah. It was still kind of like, because um, obviously there's no really NPC interactions or anything, apart from um, you can pick up the commander of one of the factions. <laughs> And he demands you put him down. <laughs> but you can drop him in the other faction's prison and get a shitload of money. Because that was the one of the ways you could get off is you could hire an interstellar ship, but it cost a bomb and you had to do jobs. Find objects in one side of the city and drop them in the other to make money, depending on who you work for and stuff. And um, and it was amazing. I, I remember I spent hours playing that game and just exploring everything around it. And it was, it was you know, it's one of those few experiences, really rare, in anyone's gaming life where your idea of what a video game can be is completely redefined and expanded beyond any comprehension you had before. And that's what Mercenary was like when I you know, first realized what I was playing. Yeah, that, I mean, that, that sounds so amazing, but also surely that, that ruins all of the games for maybe like 15 years. <laughs> well, in a, in a way, it kind of it was a, it, it, what it felt like more was like it was a game from the future. Yeah. So, are you like fully invested into like games culture now? Are you getting all the magazines and stuff? Um, no. Even then, eighty five. I think I don't even think in. Uh, I don't even think then I was getting magazines. I didn't get a gaming mag until about eighty six, and I bought Commodore User um, at an airport because I was I needed something to read. Yeah. And my mum bought me at an airport, and then I realised because I'd never really considered buying a gaming mag. I don't know why. I really don't know why. It wasn't like, you know, your pals weren't all getting them as well. Because I'm sure no, that's where I first got a game mag was like someone gave me my, one. No, yeah. None of my friend group read gaming mags. No, I was the first person to actually go and read a magazine. Um, and that was mad. I tell you, one of our friends, his dad ran a video game market store and he would get the uh, wholesale brochures. Oh, and they, nice. They were awesome. But if you got, a, if you managed to get a lend of one of those for lunchtime, you were like, <gasps> like so much stuff. Because obviously, I had loads of stuff that wasn't actually making it to retail because the retail was still being quite selective. Yeah. By that point, and so there'd be like games that looked amazing, and then there were like adult games at the end where it was all like really salacious <laughs> and probably awful, but all the strip pokers and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the adult sex quiz, <laughs> things like that. Um, but I don't think, yeah, I bought a magazine kind of by accident. And then after that, I was hooked. I had to have it every single month. And then it turned out I'd been buying the wrong magazine all along. Because uh, after a few years of, I think I owned the Plus Four for a couple of years before my, my dad relented. And actually, I got a secondhand Commodore 128 for Christmas. Okay. And um, that came with a massive stack of Zap 64s. And um, and that's when what, I read with the like with the sale you get the computer and the magazines. Yeah. Well, it was it was some kid dumping his entire Commodore sixty four collection in order to buy an Amiga. So he gave me it, part of the sale was a big load of games, Commodore one two eight, and just this big stack of Zap sixty four. It's like two years worth of Zaps. Oh, that's a good deal. 
fuck me. I was like, Ugh. and the, the funniest thing about it is, is that I know now that my parents must have bought the computer in October because in October before Christmas, my dad was like, hey, son, do you want all these gaming mags? <laughs> <laughs> suddenly my dad had like, yeah, dad, why have we got 24 issues of Zap 60? Where, where did they come from? Well, I didn't bother to ask. I was just like, hell yeah. And then just went through reading them all. And, and then I realized I'd been buying the wrong Mac all along. And I should have been buying Zap 64, but. <laughs> yeah that was the way it goes but the weird thing is about the plus four I, I will say there were some amazing games that master Torrent put out uh, on the 199 level there were some actually games like fingers malone which my mum completed and I, my mum was a hardcore gamer at that point she got to the last level of manic minor and she completed fingers malone which if you don't know if you I have don't know played, what fingers malone is now what is it it's a fucking brilliant game. It's a it's a one ninety nine job, and it's kind of like a weird combination of Pac Man and a platform game, okay. <laughs> where you have to run around. You are a credit card that's also a international jewel thief, <laughs> and you have to run around these levels. Sold. Yeah, you have to run around levels, kind of like lighting. Instead of like eating dots, you're lighting dots along the floor. So you have to light up all the dots along the floor. I guess it's kind of maybe a bit like Load Runner. Okay. I'm not. I'm not quite sure how to describe it, but it was like one of these weird, one of these really weird uh, hybrid of about five different arcades. Sounds like someone's just found a bunch of assets on a computer and be like, right, yeah. we need to get something out this month. What can we do? Let's chuck all this together. <laughs> well, again, it was a one man. It was a one man band job as well. Yeah. Um, but it was like a. You know, it was a weird hybrid of about five arcade games jammed together, and it was really good. And it had like ten levels or something, and it was hard. And my mum did it. It was, it was like she finished it. It was like hell yeah, mum. She was like totally into it. And I say Manic Miner, she loved because that came out on the C16 Plus 4 eventually. And um, yeah, that was the first in- encounter I had with Manic Miner. And then I put two and two together that, you know, Jet Set Willy uh, was the sequel to Manic Miner. I was like, oh, bloody hell. Um, that <laughs> so was I a, take that- it it was it, like there was no um, no one in the family looked on games as like, uh, you know, in a disparaging way. It was like, oh, this is cool. This is fun. Oh yeah, no, totally. My, I mean, my parents were totally into it. My mum loved playing games because um, I think when she like she was a housewife, and then um, once she'd done all her like homework, she'd just go and play games. And um, you know that was before she she then got a job eventually, and that she played games less and less after that. But for a while, she was quite a hardcore gamer, and she was like <laughs> looking at games that you know she would get this one, you know, like she was looking for games that she wanted to play. And, That's amazing. Uh, I thought that was awesome for um, a mum in the 80s. Totally. And my sister kind of dallied with games. We played a lot of, um, on the Commodore 128, we played a lot of international soccer on the cartridge. My sister really enjoyed that. And we played a bit of Gauntlet. Um, Though I remember much fonder memories of playing Gauntlet on the Spectrum with a friend. Like frantic games of Gauntlet. So, Um, like, did you ever sort of do anything else? Like, you strike me as someone that would have been into, like, programming and stuff early on, but maybe not. Maybe I'm wrong. Did do a little bit of that. There was some really, um, uh, it was always the classic typing stuff, you know, with the listings. Yeah. So once you got into magazines and you saw listings and then, ah, we can type these in. But they, I mean, it was never worth it. The games were always terrible. So you'd spend hours typing in. So I wasn't really into it. I did a few things in basic. We worked out how to, you know, do, um, how to do input commands so you could make it talk back to you and stuff like that. And, a bit beyond the standard print and go-to stuff. Um, but I never really did it for me because I've, I've never been very good at maths. So okay. I, I never been – I can't do maths in my head very well. So I was never really interested in programming because it's, it is fundamentally mathematical, really. 
So it was always just like a full-on leisure pursuit, essentially. Yeah, but what I do remember on the Plus Four, weirdly, um, and this is quite unique, I think, uh, was it had a reset button. And you could press this button, and it would jump into um, what was called the monitor, which is like okay. this weird interface. It wasn't basic anymore. It was some weird interface. It was completely unuser-friendly. And so I was just bashing through the keys and pressing enter to see what they would do. And most of them would be like, that's not a command. And then you got to M, and I pressed M and pressed enter, and it brought up this like page of just numbers and characters. And what I was doing was I was looking at the first kind of like, I guess, 16 bits of memory. And then it kept pressing M and it would go on to the next lot. And as you kept pressing M, you would see more and more of this memory going by. And you could see, and then I realized then I must be looking at the RAM of the computer, what is still in RAM. Yeah. And I remember to this day, it was hilarious seeing an offensive message from a programmer to hackers. That said, <laughs> Fuck off out of my code, you hacking scum. <laughs> and being like, wow, that must be from the programmer. And like knowing all that stuff, like being like astonished that there would be a secret message in, in the game data somewhere or other. And because um, you could sometimes see like if the, you know, you'd see just the, the word score go by. And so you knew that was text for the game, you know, and it'd be then endless pages of gobbledygook, which now I appreciate must have been like graphics and yeah. logic and things like that. But, oh, that's uh, amazing. That must have been so exciting. Like you, you've, exactly. you've cracked the code. Yeah, yeah, totally. And then the other thing I did that was kind of more hacky was on the, with the Commodore 128, um, after a, about after a year, my dad. I think I think what was going on was my sister got into horse horse riding, and so she had to keep a horse in stables. And I think that that was quite expensive. And I think my parents felt guilty that I had no expensive hobbies like that. So my dad bought me a disc drive for the Commodore sixty four. Okay, which like completely changes the type of games you can access on the Commodore sixty four. Like we're so used to the UK model of being just tape based, whereas the US model was it was always a disc machine. There were never tape games in America, I think. And the American disc-based games are on a different level. They're like playing Amiga games in, in some respects. How is that even possible? They're mind-boggling. Um, because it's like non-linear access, right? Uh, okay, so, okay. Because, like, you know, you, you got to multi-load on the tape, in the tape era where you'd like play through one level and then load the next level and so you could devote all the RAM you had to each level. But it's not the same as having a non-linear access where it can just say, right, well, no this bit now and then no this bit. Yeah. And um, and, and some of the games I've like, I played, I remember playing, yeah, like another game that was just, had the same effect on me as Mercenary, really, which was Ultima 4. Okay, okay. Gets one. Like, someone lent it to me, um, this friend of ours at uh, secondary school, and he said, yeah, you've got to make sure you keep all the discs. And I was like, how many discs is it on? And he's like, four. So this game comes on four discs, and um, that's eight sides, right? Yeah, and, yeah. And I looked at the disc, and one is just called Towns, and the other one's like you know, like Countryside One or something like that. And so you put it into, laid out the game, and the first side of the first disc is all intro, like this incredible animated intro where you like pick your traits and all this kind of business, and before you embark on the quest. And then um, I remember loading the world, and just this huge fucking world. And like wandering around, like, oh my God. And then like going into a city and having to put in the town disc and it loading a whole town and you could walk around this massive <laughs> town. And it was like, fuck, like enormous. And it was like, uh, basically it's Skyrim, but in Dwarf Fortress graphics, you know. And um, 
well, slightly better than that. They were actually defined little graphics. Yeah, yeah. But uh, it was still the, the idea of the scope of how big a Commodore 64 game could be. If I mean, there's no way it would work on tape. So it never really had much of an impact here. But uh, as an RPG, it's insane. It's so complex and so deep. And it's an 8-bit RPG. And that's why I was never impressed with Final Fantasy. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking, I was just thinking then, like, did you ever play like Zelda or anything like that? No, no, they're, they're utter bullshit as far as I see. <laughs> <laughs> weak source. But you I mean, were aware of it and you were like completely judgmental, like, well, this is nothing compared to like Ultima or Mercy. No, we have to remember the NES didn't come out in the UK until like 87. I suppose, yeah, it was quite late on. So um, quite anyway, late. the hacky stuff. So what happened was that my dad got this disk drive. Yeah. Commodore 64, and then that Christmas, I think I got what was called uh, the Action Replay. Do you remember the Action I Replay? Do, yeah, yeah. Those like the, the cheat codes. Yeah, the cheat code one. Well, on the Commodore 64, it was this like omniscient, like omnipotent cartridge. It like did amazing things. So you put the cartridge in, it had the freeze button as well as the reset button. You press freeze, it brought up a menu. And you could do all sorts of stuff. You could type in pokes, and you could print the screen, the current screen, to a printer. You could save all the contents of RAM to disk, just like that. So if you had a single load tape game, you could just load it up, press the button, save it to disk. Like It was that easy to pirate. And um, the other thing you could do is you could inspect all the graphics. So you could actually, there's a sprite viewer. So it would go through, and it would just show all the memory in the format of sprites. And eventually, if you scrolled long enough, you'd see all the sprites in the game. And you could do amazing stuff with that. So and this, but this save. wouldn't be like you know, um, in the manual or anything. You're you're clearly digging for this stuff because you've had this earlier revelation that maybe like let's see what I can find in here. Yeah, totally. That was the thing. I mean, it didn't really. It, I mean, the manual was pretty basic. It was just like Sprite Viewer allows you to view sprites. It used yeah you know, arrow keys to view sprites. <laughs> that was about it. But um, you could save a sprite off to disk and then load it back in. So you could swap sprites between games which was, like, you know, amazing. So I remember doing an awful lot of that. What was your, your favourite sprite switch? Well, actually, it's really grubby. It's really grubby. <laughs> there, was, <laughs> there, was a, there was a thing called shoot-em-up construction kit. Okay. Yeah, where you could build your own shoot-em-ups. So by Sensible Software, funnily enough, well before International Soccer and, and Cannon Folder, they designed this shoot-em-up construction kit. It was absolutely brilliant. Brilliant thing. And... Um, so what I ended up doing, and this is like really weird, is uh, there was a game called Barbarian. Don't you remember this? The sword fighting game. Yeah. It was one one sword fighting. And What's it the cover had, like a kind of big muscly guy that, with a woman in a bikini? It's, it's actually Wolf from the Gladiators. Okay. Cover, before he was Wolf from the Gladiators and Maria Whitaker. Ah. Girl. And in the game, there was a digitized, well, not even digitized. It was like a really sloppily drawn version of Maria Whitaker. It was a sprite. Okay. Turned out she was a sprite. So when I went through the graphic files for Barbarian, I found Maria Whitaker, and I knew that there was a cheat. Apparently, there was some weird cheat code that allowed you to see her naked. And lo and behold, I saw the naked Maria Whitaker sprite, which <laughs> <laughs> was like all pink with like a little like three pixels of black for pubes. <laughs> and so what I did was I copied that sprite. Everything it was in, it was actually two sprites, like the top and the bottom. And I copied them off, and then I loaded them into Shoot My Construction Kit, so I could have. Like a shoot 'em up that was like uh, where I was a the player was a cock and you shot sperm bullets <laughs> and naked Maria Whitaker. <laughs> I found this immensely arousing. And eventually I just changed it into you were a naked Maria Whitaker firing naked Maria Whitakers at a naked Maria Whitaker. 
double down on the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, speak <laughs> nine all the time, and uh, and that was it. And that was the, that was the hacky thing I, I really did really, apart from like pirating loads of games. Oh man, that is amazing. That's the whole thing. It was awesome. <laughs> and then um and then I ended up selling the lot. I sold the whole lot in 1989 uh, to a friend for 250 quid was I got for the Commodore 128 plus games plus disk drive plus cartridge and all this stuff. I don't know. Is that a good deal? Uh, yes, it was quite a good deal. I think Amigas was still 399 okay. at that point. So, But the reason why I sold it all was because I wanted to buy a Japanese Mega Drive. That was specific. And you could buy a Japanese Mega Drive with two games for 189 quid. Why? Uh, why specifically Japanese? Is that just because it wasn't out yet, and you were like, I need one of those? UK. That was the thing. They weren't. It wasn't available in the UK. It was only available from um, Japan. And I think what we actually ended up getting were Hong Kong units because okay. I think Hong Kong uses PAL. So they'd done like a version for Hong Kong or something that came in Jap- Japanese packaging, but it would run on a PAL telly. And um, I was lucky enough to have a telly that accidentally did PAL sixty. I think. So you must you like you you're all in on games then. Like that is your thing. Yeah, yeah. I think by the time I was, by the time I was like six months into the plus four, and I was buying stuff from Boots, then I was solid gaming. I just wanted to game, and whenever I went around to a friend's house, I wanted to play on their computer. Yeah, that's what I wanted to do. Or if I was at the seaside, I wanted to go to the arcade. That they, you know, I was obsessed at, by that age. That was by about seven. I was like, I want to play games. I just want to play games. So how old were you when you got your Japanese Mega Drive? God, it must have been 89, so I would have been 15. Yeah. That's, that's, I don't, like, I mean, I, I suppose I would have known about them, but I never would have thought, I can do that, I can get one of those. Well, I remember there was a, it, what it came down to, do you remember the magazine um, Zero? I don't, was, I don't. It was a magazine published by Dennis, and uh, do you remember, you must have the legends of your Sinclair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so your Sinclair was a legendary mag, and kind of some of the staff on there, like David McCandless was like geeky guy on on your Sinclair, and he became like a staffer on uh, Zero, and it was like a magazine set up that dedicated to all the 16-bit machines. So it did um, Amiga ST, IBM PC as well, which was quite unusual at the time, and it also had a console section. They decided to do console stuff, and really early on, they did a thing about the Mega Drive, and I saw that this stuff in the Mega Drive. I thought, holy shit! I have to have a Mega Drive. And of course, because it was Sega, and I knew Sega made the best arcade games because I was a complete Sega fanboy in the arcade. Like, Where from, would you have had like access I, to the arcade? Oh, uh, Apart from holidays, fairs. So it was a travel, in that part of rural Cambridgeshire, there were travelling fairs that would come round. Ah, uh, okay. For Easter and for like May bank holiday and then summer fairs and stuff like that. And then um, I think there was often a Halloween fair. And they would just come around and they'd always have arcades, at least two arcades. And they were full of cabs, full of cabs. And I remember that was the highlight. That was where we saw um, all the big names of that 80s jammer scene, really, from like Double Dragon, Afterburner, Outrun, Hang On, like all the greats, like all the real solid greats were there. And getting to play all of those as well, I mean, that was awesome. And so yeah, you I think- just wanted that in your home? Uh, pretty much, and that's what it, it pretty much looked like. When you saw Space Harrier 2, I think it was, they showed um, screenshots of that. It was like, it just looks like the arcade. It's exactly the same as the arcade. Because I think I don't understanding, I played on Friends Amigas and STs, and like while they looked like the arcade, they didn't necessarily move like the arcade. There was still something a little bit clunky 
that the Amiga and the ST still weren't quite up to doing true arcade quality. No, no, no. Whereas the Mega Drive did. And um, even though it was a bit of a slightly pared down, slightly lower res at times version. But basically, because, I mean, the Mega Drive is a 68000 uh, custom, really good custom graphics chip based on Sega's arcade board and then a Z80 just to do sound. Like, you know, that's a powerhouse beast. It's got two CPUs, for fuck's sake. And, uh, you know, whereas the ST was just a shabby pretend 16-bit. <laughs> it had one one really good chip in it. But um, uh, that was the thing that the arcade really led the way. You know, that was the thing that was really missing, I think, today, is you don't have a tier of ultra, ultra premium quality gaming that isn't for home use. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah absolutely. So, I think in a way, maybe some of the VR experiences that are coming are going to be like that. Like when people have got VR running on a fucking crazy supercomputer. And but it's, it's, just, it's really uh, hard to, to sell that, though. Like VR is still is really hard. It's a really hard thing to kind of preview yeah. or show one show anyone if they don't already have a VR headset, you know? Yeah, true, true, too true. But I think if they, they you know, if it gets big enough and someone says, well, if I build a fucking render farm to do real-time graphics, like 100 times better than a PC running Oculus can do, it becomes kind of viable as an entertainment medium once it's been accepted as a home one, if you know what yeah. I mean. Weirdly, I think I think it would it, it could potentially work in exactly the same way as arcades, where you would have dedicated VR spaces and yeah. you could go and they could really like blow your mind and then well, you're just so you're cool. chasing that high then at home. Yeah, that is the weird thing they talk about on Radio 4, on the film programme of all things. They're talking about this film, this documentary that about someone going blind that this guy had made. He'd done a film version, but he also done a VR version. And they'd showed them side by side. So you could go to, go to the screening and watch the, uh, the the traditional film version and then you could go and actually relive it as the VR. And the VR one, of you know, a VR experience of slowly going blind is like always going to be a million times deeper than watching a film version of it. Of course, and yeah. Of course, like Francine Stock, the reviewer, was just babbling incoherently about how like mind-fucking the whole thing is and how this is clearly going to be a new entertainment thing um and i think that was that's kind of where where vr it's not just games is it it's 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 really just about experiences and and being put into worlds yeah so let's let's go back to the uh the mega drive then so you you order this where where do you order your your japanese mega drive from i can't remember the actual thing i've got a feeling it might have been raven games you know i don't Um, know what that is or Castle Computers. It was like one of these uh, companies that advertised in the mags. Like, uh, they had a big list of import stuff. They did PC Engine. They did, um, yeah, did PC Engine and Mega Drive and a few other things as well, like um, FM Towns, like stuff that was the obscure Japanese stuff that was yeah. around at the time. Uh, yeah, no, so I ordered it. I ordered it with uh, actually Super Shinobi. Oh, nice. With the other... So and it came and uh, they didn't have any more Alex kids. So it came. The Mega Drive came with just with Super Shinobi, and um, they said they'd send Alex kid later. <laughs> and uh, I remember like unpacking this machine and just it like I never lusted after a, a bit of gaming hardware in quite the same way as I did when I saw my first Japanese Mega Drive because it was like jet black with the gold letters the 16 bit gold 16 it was like <gasps> it was just unbelievable and with all like the japanese packaging and stuff as well yeah just beautiful beautiful stuff absolutely good i mean the polystyrene felt different it was like amazing <laughs> and um i remember like plugging it in and, and just 
like putting and somehow for some reason i did not worry about whether or not it'd run on my telly but i think they'd made assurances in the advert that it would run on a, on a uk telly but it must have been pal 60 because one of the because by that point my dad had struck up a really good relationship with the local tip right okay <laughs> which meant he got access to all the broken tellies so people would always drop off broken tellies and he would pick them up take them home diagnose and then fix the ones that were fixable and so we had tellies like my sister had a telly i had a telly <laughs> there was a telly downstairs you know and uh, i had this portable and by some miracle um because one of the tvs in the house couldn't play it it would just the screen would just roll and roll and roll yeah so i presume it was trying to do power 60 at 50 and couldn't sync it and uh but one this portable i had played it perfectly and it looked like an arcade game because i had the scan lines and shit um so i don't know if it was actually ntsc i'm, I'm not 100 percent sure yeah but you wouldn't but, think to question it then. Like, you wouldn't have had necessarily any experience of trying a foreign no. console on a TV. Like, this is what it's like. <laughs> of course, like, totally uncharted territory. I think it was like, apart from the NES, must have been the first kind of, like, Japanese console you could actually import as well. Yeah. With the PC Engine and then the Mega Drive. But, um, yeah, I just remember putting in Super Shinobi and um, turning it on and the Sega logo popping up and it just being, like, this revelation, revelatory experience. Because it wasn't an arcade game. But it felt like an arcade game in every respect, every respect. And it was just finally you'd achieved, you were entering that tier of the stuff that had been so expensive and so far away and so fleeting as well. Yeah, yeah. You could spend all day with this thing. Yeah. It was like, you know, I I was just jealous of anyone who lived by the sea because it's like you had access to an arcade. You could go there every, every day. Like that's like an amazing thing. To, that like what a privilege, you know. Whereas we had to wait for a fair or to go on holiday, um, or to go to Rollerberry or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, just and I played Super Shinobi to death, and it was the only game I had. So you know, I played it to death, and it's brilliant. It's a really good platformy, shooty kind of combat game. Um, quite a few nifty little secrets in it, and um, two different endings and all that stuff. Were you able to get games for it though, with it being a Japanese machine? Yeah, you could mail order. So, okay, okay, but yeah. is that like? I mean, that's that's a big step up from your, you know, two weeks pocket money. Suddenly, mail yeah. order Japanese games. It is when they're like forty quid. That was the thing; it really rocketed up, and um, you know, I was surprised that I didn't really consider it that way. But I think by that time, I'd been so used to buying kind of okay games for two quid every two weeks that kind of getting one amazing game kind of made it brilliant. Okay. Yeah. And um, it was, it was, yeah, it was just awesome to be able to play Super Shinobi uh, so early, so ahead of everybody else. So I remember, yeah, were you suddenly the most popular kid in school? Well, not the most popular kid in school, but you know what I mean. Not really, but I got a lot of kudos for having a Mega Drive because a lot of people didn't even know what the fuck a Mega Drive was. Yeah, you know what I mean. I'm like, what's that? And like, you know, it's a game console from Japan. I'm like, what? Like, you know, they, they didn't care. It was much more like Amiga orientated at that time, and. Um, I remember another friend in my village, he got, he actually imported a Game Boy um, the same month that I got uh, a Mega Drive. And I think he was trying to compete with me in some weird way. So I told him that I was going to get this Mega Drive. <laughs> he was like, fuck that, I'm going to get a fucking Game Boy. And lo and behold, Game Boy was much more popular because you could play Tetris at school and that blew everyone's mind. <laughs> and I felt a little bit in the shade. But I was like, oh, fuck you guys, you're going to fucking love the Mega Drive when it comes out here. Um, and then after a few months, my copy of Alex Kid turned up, and I played a shitload of that and finished that. And then I got my first Saturday job, which I would have been about 16. And uh, 
got my first Saturday job and I spent, saved and saved and saved and spent all of the savings on two Mega Drive games in that, that summer afterward. And um, I picked two doozies for that as well. I picked Golden Axe and Thunder Force 3. Oh, that's good. Oh, God damn, I did I do well. I remember like, I remember when you were interviewing um, Stephen Bailey and he was saying, like, when, you, when you were saving up for Mega Drive game, if it was shit, it was like the end of your life. And uh, that was so true. The risk felt so big. Like, would it be okay? But oh, then- I would spend like full, fully like days researching games before I bought them. I'd go through my whole <laughs> back catalogue of CVGs and stuff, make sure, read all the previews again, made sure, yep, this is definitely yeah. the right choice. That was the thing, because I played Golden Axe in the arcade a lot. Um, I knew it was going to be great. Um, but Thunder Force 3 was an unknown quantity, but it looked so good. The, the screenshots, I think that was in the CVG Guide to Consoles, Volume 2, had some screenshots in it. And um, I just thought, I just got to have that. That's brilliant as a side-scrolling shooter. And it was brilliant as a side-scrolling shooter. I was so happy. And then um, and then after a while, by, the, by, by that point, I was a bit like this kind of, I needed to have more games in my life. Yeah. And so I sold, I did a part exchange um, of my Mega Drive in the weirdest, like, swerve ever with a mate. I swapped it for, uh, I think it was 150 quid and uh, a ZX Spectrum Plus 2. <laughs> what? <laughs> Shitloads of games. I that is back. a bizarre switch. I know, I went back a generation. and um, But then again... I had a suddenly I had a shitload of games to play. All of a sudden, I had this massive library of games to get through. Wasn't what weren't they just awful in comparison? They were not awful, but just you know, just purely on on an aesthetics level. You're like, oh, back to this well, and, and loading games as well. Yeah, going back to loading games was fun. I have to know it wasn't to be honest, but um, there was some quite good stuff there. The stuff I'd never played, like Switchblade. Okay. Um, where they'd really got the where the spectrum aesthetic had really got sorted out and it was really looking like really actually quite stylish rather than just being like functionally okay it was actually this is genuinely a stylish stylish graphics really beautiful shading and things so you weren't going back to your mate's house and like looking in through the window wistfully uh, and playing <laughs> like golden axe and stuff. i mean by that time i'd rinsed the shit out of those games that was the thing you know you just, you just don't even i mean i can't even play golden axe now because I just played it so much. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I still play Super Shinobi, though. I got a Japanese Mega Drive a couple of years ago um, with Super Shinobi, and I still play it um, just for fun times. Um, but then, no, going back to the Spectrum, that was deep. And uh, uh, it was quite fun to go back and revisiting everything. And it was like a real cool re-education in, in like, all that 8-bit era. Yeah. Like, Usually people kind of tend to drift away from games a bit around this time. And it's like, you know, when people are going to uni and stuff, did you not do that? No, I am. Um... Like, and did you all, like, also I was going to say, did you ever have any, cause you're clearly like all in on this, but did you ever think about what, like working in games or doing like what you've ended up doing, like doing freelance stuff or anything? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, so what happened was I ended up, um, after the spectrum, I got an Amiga 600, um, and then I had a bit of a Mika play. And then on the 600 as well, um, that's when I first started making music. Because I, okay. I got Pro Tracker, so I was making mod music by that point. And um, so I actually ended up spending more time making tunes than playing games on, um, on my Amiga. And then eventually I actually went for a job at a small developer, kind of, uh, kind of mid-tier developer, um, who I'm not going to name. Because um, I want to tell some amazing stories. Okay, good. Uh, that, are, that are really quite incriminating, perhaps. Uh, I'm not going to name them, 
But um, I went for a job for them and I got employed as a play tester. And when I was about 19. Okay. Um, play so test- you didn't go to uni or anything? You just like, I'm going to get No, I didn't go to uni. I did Art Foundation and then I dropped out. Okay. Because uh, it was really poorly run. And I dropped out and like became a bit aimless. And then, um, so then I got a job as a play tester and I only lasted three months. They didn't keep me on after the three months probation. Um, I think because I was just a dick in some extent. And in another extent, it's because the company was incredibly toxic. But <laughs> looking back at it now, the company was really awful. Okay. Um, but the, some of the examples of stuff we did there, I, I, I'll tell you about it. But uh, basically, they were predominantly developing Amiga 1200 stuff and Mega Drive and uh, SNES. So it was that kind of 16-bit and development. Yeah. Right on the cusp. This is about, it must be 93 ish and um that must have been a dream job in theory though you get to play games like what 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 a life oh dang <laughs> i mean I, I know obviously not in practice but just the, the thought of it well, yeah. you know I mean, what's your favorite food Dick? yeah no i know i know i know you know what i mean it's like you know well no but but I'm, so, I'm just saying purely in the abstract you know, like you find out you've got this job you're like oh amazing <laughs> well yeah it, well where was at the time it was hugely exciting like, oh, i'm gonna be playing games all the time but of course you're playing shit games all the time yeah exactly and it's terrible you have to and, and even if it's a good game having to play it all the time is awful so against your will sort of thing that was that was kind of the problem and also i mean the, the playtesting department was appallingly badly run so like the manager was just just bad and the other two the other two guys that we were with, just three of us play testing the entire company's output and they had like eight projects on the go so you couldn't really play test exhaustively until crunch and then it was just crunch 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 so but i wasn't really there long enough to have a crunch thing but i did have to do a few submission videos and they were horrible so you have to just set up a video recorder and play the game from beginning to end on a tape for nintendo and uh and then i was playing it through and i think uh we left, you had to leave it on overnight and things like that. <laughs> so like you'd play all day because obviously some games they take more than eight hours. So you'd play all day and then have to pause it and go home and then come back in and hope that it hadn't fallen <laughs> over during the night. And then put another videotape in and keep going. And um, I remember playing through it. And I think I was two days into a submission video for some football American football based game uh, involving zombies, and um, which is actually all right. And it fucking crashed. Like, bang, right in the middle of their submission. This is their submission, right? So it's not supposed to have any bugs at all. Yeah. And it fucking crashed in the middle. Like, I'd say, like, I'm pissed off. And, they're, they're, you know, the producer's pissed off. And then the coder's pissed off. But luckily, they got the crash on tape. And uh, they were overjoyed about that. <laughs> they were like, but were you recording? Were you recording? I was like, yeah. And, like, oh. and they say, rewind it back. And they could see exactly what caused the crash. It was something to do with a bouncing head being too far ahead of the ball or something. Right, okay. Something really trivial that should have been fixed a long time ago that had already been flagged. It was like, that's how the company was running. It was just that sort of thing. There was uh, ECTS. I don't know if it was called ECTS at the time. The big trade up, the, show. The big trade show was coming up and they had a big game on Amiga that they really wanted to showcase. And this guy who was my boss's boss, who was a kind of known dick within the company as a dick, um, had bought uh, an enormous job lot of like, floppy disks um, at some random auction. Okay. And I was told to make 120 copies of this game um, using just Amiga and Amiga public domain copying software and a bunch of external drives. 
and um, I had to make 120 copies, which is like it takes a long time. And so I put this, these discs in, disc one, and then you start off the copying. It's going really slow, even for a copying thing. Um, it's taking it really, really slowly. And then, so I didn't have time to check everything to make sure it worked. You're not going to be able to check the third disc because that's like, you know, 12 hours of gameplay to get to that disc. Yeah. Um, so I just had to make sure, all I did was make sure the first disc booted. And every now and again, there was like one in three was just failing. It just wasn't booting. So I had to do like, in the end, I ended up doing like, 360 copies or something <laughs> being there till like two in the morning just like copying around and um getting really like bleary eyed and stuff like that so anyway i get the 120 gut done the all boot the first disc boots on all of these and then this guy comes to pick them up and he says do these all do these all work and i said they all boot on the first disc you, you know i could you know just basically assuming that he would know there was no way you could check that all three discs yeah so anyway he takes them off to the um so ECTS, obviously, they all get handed out to various buyers and, you know, friends and stuff like that. And then he comes in on Monday morning and uh, he's like, I'm on a word with you. And, uh, and I was like, oh, God, what's going on? Because, you know, 80% of those games don't work. The disc didn't work. Like, what are you doing? You told me all worked. And I got, like, absolutely bollocked for this. And I said, well, I don't know. It must be the disc. You bought them in a fucking job lot. I bet they're all bullshit or whatever. But um, anyway, I got a verbal warning for that. And... Um, and it turns out, like, literally, this is kind of like a, a month into the job. And then in my third month, it turns out they take the game for final retail duplication. And lo and behold, the duplicators can't get a copy to work. And what's <laughs> actually happened is the program has in, in, implemented such vicious copy protection on his build of the game that nobody can copy it. And it was never my fault anyway, but I never got an apology. What a dick what a dick well yeah that was the kind of way it was in that uh, the way that company goes and uh, the pr for that company told me that another pr would always send out review copies with an eighth of hash that was his standard <laughs> that was his standard reviewing incentive um and there was lots of other crazy shit going on there really and um, one of them uh, one of the producers had a massive mental breakdown because he was so overstressed and there was like lots of other like really miserable things going on in that company. So that's going to turn you off a, a career in games, clearly. Yeah, I was, I was kind of, I think I was actually pretty devastated by the time I, I, I by the time I left there because it really did make me think this is a horrible industry and this is a horrible place to work. <laughs> and but you, you kept know, playing games though, obviously. Uh, no, I didn't. I didn't play oh, games. Really? Yeah, I didn't play games for about two years after that. I didn't really play anything seriously. Um, uh, was it genuinely because like you felt it kind of poisoned your enjoyment of them a bit a little bit a little bit because i've been burnt out by the intense forced playing of yeah, so yeah, yeah. games i mean i think in the time i was there we'd we'd crunched on about five games like to death and uh that had really really kind of killed a lot of enthusiasm and it was in a bit of a lull period i tell you one thing that was cool actually is that one day uh, all the programmers had gone Right. We came into the office and none of the programmers were in. They were all out. And that's unprecedented. They're always there. And uh, we asked, like, where, where, you know, where are all the coders? And they're like, oh, they've gone to London for a secret thing. And, uh, and we were like, oh, like, what are they up to? And they were like, we can't tell you. It's secret. They've had to sign NDAs. And then the next day, they will come back in. And they are like wide-eyed, agog, and babbling amongst themselves. They're like, that whatever they've gone to see had completely blown their minds. And I was asking when I was like, Kev, what, you know, what did you see? And I was like, I can't tell you what it was, but it's the future. This is, it's completely revolutionary. It's like nobody's prepared for what's about to happen. 
and they'd been to see the programmer developer preview of the Sony PlayStation. Oh, no way. Yeah, that's what they'd been to see. And they were and they were right. <laughs> they were absolutely yeah, right. Absolutely right. And that was the thing. Was um, that the thing that kind of got you back into games? Yeah, no, no. It was a PC that got me back into gaming. Um, yeah, my dad built a PC. And um, my dad built a PC, uh, a 486. Yeah, he bought, you know, first of all, he bought a 386. And then he upgraded it to a 486 DX266. Which, if you don't know, if you're not a pc head that was like a real landmark platform okay by that time it could do that that was a machine that could fucking do some business and it was the machine that could run doom for example okay really nice, give you a good game of doom and um i played uh i remember i played x-wing a friend of mine let me x-wing um which was unbelievable one of my dream games really it was like can you imagine playing you know before rogue squadron and all that stuff being able to play a flight sim that is Star Wars, like yeah, yeah. swing flight sim, like what it, with 3D graphic, like what? No, that's not possible. Oh my god, it is. This is incredible. Weirdly, I, I don't know if you like this episode only came out yesterday, but I did an episode with Chris Remo from Idle Thumbs, and he was talking about X Wing and how mm. that was his first introduction to Star Wars. Like oh, he didn't really? know anything about Star Wars, and he just he played X Wing and then Tie Fighter. And was oh, just like, oh my god, this is amazing, guys! Do you know uh, about this world? And they're like, yes, it's Star Wars. Yeah, right. That is a mind boggler. Because for me, it was like being in the film's universe. Yeah, and totally. Like it was such an amazing. Like it wasn't even an evocation. It was the universe. You were actually playing the game. Yeah, I mean, you're actually playing the film, sort of, sort of, so to speak. And it was brilliant because it was like flight sim light. It wasn't like purely arcade, like Star Wars arcade. And it wasn't like a really techie flight sim. It's just nicely balanced in the middle. And you got a real sense of being a fighter pilot. You were like, this is amazing. And it was just brilliant. And that got me back into PC gaming in and a big were, way. Were you just like full on PC guy then from there on? Yeah. And then I played a lot of Ultima Underworld. Um, went back to the Ultima games. Played the Ultima Underworld, Ultima 8. Um, uh, there was a, yeah, XCOM, Enemy Unknown. Oh, yeah one as well ufo anyway i think it was called here which was just fucking brilliant but i love laser squad that's the thing is going back the gollops um going back to the spectrum stuff when i got the zx spectrum plus two it had the full version of laser squad and i just played that to death because laser squad is brilliant no matter what platform it's on um and that's what led to xcom yeah Um, i've only ever played the the new xcoms the uh, reboots Deck. I never had a like. I never had a home computer. I was always uh, I was consoles all the way up until kind of like mid nineties. Oh right, right. No, fair enough. But yeah, then I was into PC, and I was a big PC gamer for a long time. I played on people's. Um, I remember playing a Japanese um, PlayStation, playing Tekken on that for hours, and really hurting my hand because it was the tiny joypad, not the the Euro joypad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was really difficult to hold. I remember um, weirdly, actually, the very first time I think I met you was at uh, a party at Rod's house, and you, your wrists were just totally screwed from yes. playing, like, Quake or Doom or something. Yeah, no, that was from playing fucking um, a Counter-Strike clone on Unreal Tournament. Right, okay. Yes. I was going to talk about that, because it's come back to haunt me, Dick. I've got, oh, I can't really? Play games. I can't play games at the moment, because my wrist's fucked. Oh, no. It's, like, really badly fucked. It's really awful. So what happened? Were you just, like so into it that you just really messed up your wrists oh back then i was living with um i don't know how to say it really independent 
independent businessman. Okay, fair uh, enough. Uh, for herbal products. And I had free access to a lot. Well, not free, but very, very cheap access to a lot of herbal products. And I didn't have a job. Uh, but we did have broadband. So <laughs> I played games a lot. And I played this one game far too much um, to the point where I injured both my wrists. <laughs> and I got RSI in both wrists. And it's kind of okay up until now. But then I got, um, since I had Lysander, you do a lot more carrying, a lot more wrist work. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. And he flipped out in my wrist and it really bent in a really weird way. And then whenever I tried to play a game, it would really hurt. And um, I've been told now not to play games. Oh man, is, that is heartbreaking. Uh, yeah, it's really bad, especially with. Uh, I was going to play Hyperlight Drifter, um, but I, was, I think I probably shouldn't. I'm saving them up for No Man's Sky. So <laughs> I go on holiday the day. I'm actually going on holiday for two weeks on the day it's released. So I'll come back, hopefully, with completely renewed wrists and be able to play No Man's Sky. So, like, as- you're talking about, like, you know, when you were younger, you gave yourself this, this chronic injury which has come back to haunt you, but. Was that yes. because you you just you were loving the game so much and you weren't really aware, or are you competitive, or like what why, uh, what was the compulsion? It was kind of part of it was competitive. That was when I was really into multiplayer. It was the only time I've, in my life I've really been into multiplayer gaming because I had the time and the and the broadband to do it. And of course, everything was pirated, and you could run pirated stuff all the time because you know I was living on benefits. So you just don't have money to buy proper games. Yeah. And people throw pirated stuff at you. You just get, because, you know, in the CD, by the time CDRs had become ubiquitous, piracy was just the norm. And when you're in, you're living in a culture of game, unemployed gamers, it's just that the the level of piracy is quite breathtaking at times. How quickly that stuff can filter through. And so, you know, I did so much gaming based on piracy in, in that era um it's really quite shameful so now uh, you know you see i pay for everything and so i like to feel i've given back yeah um, what what i took and you did import a japanese mega drive so you i did import early patron indeed indeed um but i remember yeah half-life everything from half-life onwards i would say i pirated um in that whole golden era of pc fps which was just beautiful and bountiful and will never be seen again um, there's so many great titles. From, why do you like, why do you say it'll never be seen again? Just because you can't have that kind of shift in. Yeah, well, unless the indie really picks up, um, you know. But if you go, but if you look at PC FPSs from Half Life, from about Half Life Quake Three era through to say Far Cry One, maybe there's just this massive body of amazing FPS games um, that were just so distinctive and really good huge amounts of content in them and a, a really diminished multiplayer focus so it's a lot of single player content it's just fucking fantastic um like uh um well like you know half-life and quake obviously yeah. but then there was stuff like the monolith game so no one lives forever oh man so good which are so fucking good and then monolith also then did tron 2.0 which is fucking brilliant. It was like being in Tron. Just as like X-Wing was like being a TIE fighter pilot, or, you know, you know, a fighter pilot, then Tron was like being in Tron. Like amazingly beautiful, like geometric level design. Like the architecture in the levels is just gorgeous. And it was really like really demo scene but then Monolith were ex-demo sceners. And so, uh, you know, there's a kind of the thread that runs through it that they really just lavish that game with like 
just taking the Tron world and just pushing it as far as they wanted. It was just so beautifully realized. Um, and it's a really good game underneath as well. Um, and I still go back and play Tron 2.0. I think I've ever played it. It looks great now. Um, cause, cause it's all vectors, you know, it's all like solid filled vector graphics, yeah. mostly it's not too heavily textured. So it still looks beautiful. Um, and then there was alien versus predator, the PC version where you could play as the alien and the predator. Yeah. That was the, the sort of Jaguar port, right? Uh, yeah, but it's a million times better. I mean, yeah, than, obviously, but, uh, playing as the predator for the first time, fucking hell. Like, Again, right, realizing this dream of being in the film, the film universe becoming a game universe was amazing. And um, being like the Predator and having the access to the vision modes and then actually using all that stuff in a really kind of gay, you know, to do, to be the Predator. Yeah, totally. That being, like it fits the game perfectly. Yeah, without it being kind of a recreation of the film, that was what was cool about it. They just realized that, you know, the important part about the Predator is the Predator's got really cool shit. So you're not like reenacting you know the chase through the jungle or anything like that you're doing predator stuff in a totally different place i think that's why the batman the the rocksteady batman games work so well because you are being batman and you're using all the tools like batman would it's really good yeah it's really nice but i think that was i mean and then there was all the the tactical ones like rainbow six and hidden and dangerous and ghost recon like that was when they were kind of impenetrable though yeah they were hardcore but they were so satisfying. Hidden the Dangerous 2 is still like my number one tactical FPS game. It's so, so hard. <laughs> it's really hard, but it's so rewarding because um, if you fuck up, it's your fault. That's that's always the bottom line in those those dark tactical games. SWAT 3 as well. I did an article on Eurogamer about the death of the tactical FPS, and it was a real, real labor of love to, to name check three of my favorite games which was Rainbow Six and uh, SWAT 3 and Hidden Dangerous 2. And SWAT 3 is yeah, amazing. There's lots of people talk about SWAT 4. Uh, yeah, SWAT, that's the Ken Levine one, right? The irrational one, yeah. But SWAT 3 is way better than SWAT 4 because it's much more procedure. It's much more about procedure and it's there's a lot more restraint in it and stuff like that. It's, it's really fucking good. It's really good. And it's got a shout button. I love that. <laughs> More FBS should have a shouting a button just for shouting. <laughs> ah! <laughs> make it so much better with all these fucking silent protagonists as you would have a button to scream obscenities at people <laughs> rather than swap commands um so and were also you playing yeah, just everything though like were you do you have like all the consoles and stuff as well or was you purely no, pc focused no i didn't really have my own friends had um playstations and we'd just play a fucking shit ton of ridge racer wipeout wipeout 2097 mostly and tekken just Tekken, 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 Tekken. <laughs> and uh, that was mostly the console stuff that we did. There's occasional dances with... Um, we played a lot of um, N64, actually. Uh, plenty of Goldeneye, quite a bit of Perfect Dark, and a shit ton of wrestling. Because uh, the guys... Oh, of course, yeah, the No Mercy games. Yeah, No no Mercy. In wrestling, well, No Mercy's the pinnacle, isn't it? It was yeah, Wrestling yeah. 2000, then it was No Mercy. And we just... Oh, fucking the number of wrestlers we made and the fucking... Some of the matches and that. I remember in No Mercy, me and my mate Jules, we did um, we built characters specifically with bloodletting moves. Okay. And did a first blood um, battle royale, Royal Rumble, I think it is, with a hundred people, where you were just like where the the lose condition was to bleed. And it was amazing. The game would let you set up that kind of competition. So we had these two characters that were designed to bleed, and of course it would come down that you beat everyone, and it would just be a one on one at the end. And um, I remember Andre the Giant 
<laughs> came running in at one point and uh, my mate got one of his bloodletting moves off and it just straight away as soon as he got into the thing he bloodlet <laughs> and it was just like the the, uh, the victory of it all was just so good and um, I remember just doing terrible things to the AI in that game oh I you, let you do so much though do you remember you could KO them and that wouldn't wouldn't count as a win and you yeah could just, yeah and you could just and, and they'd do that kind of struggle trying to get it from a pin and, <laughs> yes. they and they'd fall back down and then you'd just be like no picking you back up again it was like Making them KO by bashing their heads on the ring bell. Like, ding, <laughs> ding, ding, ding. And then they'd KO. And then you'd pick them up and chuck them off the ladder or something. And just doing terrible things all the way through forever. Um, really punishing. So I think X-Pac got a lot of punishment in that game. <laughs> this has actually come up before. I did a, an episode with um, John Robertson, the comedian. He does The Dark Room. And he had tons of stories about him and his mates just abusing people. Buff Bagwell, in particular, was, was their target. <laughs> <laughs> I hate him. That reminds me, actually, because those wrestling games went on to become, um, they were developed by Aki Pacific. Yeah. Japanese developer. They went on to do Def Jam Vendetta. Oh, the best. Just, that, and I remember beating the shit out of Sean Paul and absolutely loving it with Ice T. I think I was playing as Ice T, and Ice T's finisher was just a massive kick. And I remember Sean Paul. <laughs> Paul was crawling about on his all fours, and I ran up as Ice T and just booted him in the like in the balls from behind so hard that the, the model kind of flipped over. And just feel so satisfied about they it. They were real. Like I, I, I still to this day miss the kind of the Aki fighting games. They were so yeah. good because they did yeah, the the Def Jam kind of changed. They did they did like a weird kind of rhythm action type thing. Yeah, for the, the last version, and it was it was rubbish. You get the decks or something, don't you? It's like all the special moves were just terrible. But everything's it was... timed, like everything. You have to do everything on the beat, and that that but would it's... usually be right at my alley. But I know how brilliant Def Jam, especially Fight for New York, was. Yeah, yeah, Fight for New York was. I mean, I that was fucking. When you got super blinged up and you could go into spirit, like yeah. you could get your specials on just by punching someone once and things like that. You could unbalance it so beautifully, and um. I think yeah, I remember that that they they switched it back to an EA internal one, didn't they? And it was the Fight Night Studio, yeah. so it's running on the Fight Night engine, um, and it was just just wasn't the same. It was so poor, so disappointed with that. So I really looked forward to it, but I think I got a promo of it, and I was just like <gasps> aghast at what I what I was witnessing. Yeah, that was terrible. <laughs> so when when did you start sort of getting like? work in video games essentially yeah that would have been um oh god that would have been about yeah yeah late what, early 2000s i think i was writing for blessed that would oh, be what yeah, it was. This, this has come up yeah was that the first thing yeah, you've done yeah yeah it's the first thing i'd written properly about games yeah and i think it was um it was the idea that if you argue enough on the internet you can write a decent article <laughs> to make it down to if you actually if you do your arguing properly where you're like oh god i've got to go and research this argument. yeah i was going to say because there's a lot of arguing on the internet and not necessarily yeah, yeah, i can't writing. just like just pretend i know to actually know so once you do a bit of that and you actually have some facts and then you argue and you kind of think mm, you, you actually end up being able to write quite authoritatively about games and i think there's also there's a certain you know there's always going to be a certain level of like you just have a, an aptitude for writing to a certain extent but uh, that's why I, I didn't wasn't really sure i had it but then um i think i asked i asked dan if i could write a thing about sid about chip music well before chip tunes became a thing yeah i remember um, because there was the brilliant um art for that that craig did wasn't it of the... yeah craig did that really beautiful line drawing of um headphones and yeah. a c 
10, the Commodore 64 tape unit. And I remember writing about the idea that music being generated, that, that, well, the beauty of it being actually played, that is, you know, being performed for you. It's not a recording. It's the, the machines performing it. And Because uh, one of the things I loved about the Commodore 64 was the the SID chip is just beautiful, beautiful thing. And I, I would load games just for the music and make audio tapes of just the music and stuff like that. And uh, one of my favourites actually was um, going back to the whole idea of it being disc based uh, to a certain extent. Was uh, there was a one game called that called Delta, and okay. it had uh, instead of a loading screen, it had a music mixer. And the music was by Rob Hubbard, and he's the don of like 64 tunes, as far as I'm concerned. And it was this thing where it would play these looping sections of these songs, and you could switch between them. So you could change the melody and the bass line, and you could change the lead and I think the percussion. And that was just fucking amazing. You could make your own little mixtape from this thing. Um, but anyway, that was, um, I don't think I even mentioned that in the article I wrote, you know. I should have done. But, uh, yeah, I wrote that thing for Blessed. And then I think after doing a lot more arguing on the internet, Stephen Bailey asked me to write for Game Central. Oh, of course. Yeah, you did stuff for the, the teletext. Yeah, I did a whole bunch of stuff for that. So I actually went to a few events for that. I went to a few kind of PR events. And that was not very long after that, Leo Tan got a job in PR. And then Leo Tan uh, suggested that I'd be good for PR for some unknown reason. And then I got headhunted. Oh, you're revealing how incestuous this podcast is now, Tony. Oh, it's so no, Everyone needs, you know, the truth needs to come out. <laughs> it needs to come out. But yeah, basically, Leo Tan pulled me into PR. And uh, I've loved him for it ever since, clearly. And uh, yeah, so then I wasn't writing for very long, to be perfectly honest. Um, and I did some stuff. I did, uh, and then I did PR for like five years or something. God. And then uh, I did some, towards the end of my PR career, I started doing some bits and pieces for Edge, weirdly, Edge Online. And then I ended up doing some bits for Eurogamer, and then that's kind of what I've been doing mostly. Yeah. So mm. do you still uh, love games as much? Yes. Yes. Ah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think the other thing I think was uh, we've missed out was talking about emulation in the 90s. Um, that oh, from that the was huge. Onward, from the mid-90s onward, emulation became such a wonderful thing. Oh, I, I genuinely couldn't believe it. Like that, that was one of my first sort of instances of finding something on the internet and actually genuinely not believing that could be possible. Like how, how on earth could Final Fight only be three megabytes? Yes. Yeah, of course. It's things like that are mind-boggling and totally manageable over 56K modems. Oh, yeah. It was, that it was, was the other thing amazing. as well. Like pre broadband emulation was brilliant because, you know, I remember getting a load of MAME and when MAME first started getting really big and started adding, I remember playing MAME and downloading it every month because I think it updated once a month and then just be looking at the changelog to see what had been added and just being like wide-eyed at what was coming in and just like, oh my God, it can play Gradius now and like, oh my God, I'm not getting the ROMs for that. And then I remember there was a CPS2 emulator that played Final Fight. Yep just getting that and just be ah, oh, and then it got integrated into MAME and, it was like, oh. and all the Neo Geo stuff came along. That that was the oh. game changer for me when the Neo Geo stuff came. Yes, out. absolutely. So that was also interesting that at the same time when CDRs got really, really ubiquitous, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I remember a friend dropped off six CDs that was the complete Mega Drive SNES and Neo Geo ROM sets. And it being like, wow, like, like the full library. And it was just... 
that's just a, an amazing six CDs to own, you know. Do you know it's terrible because I'm I'm fairly certain that I have or I had like CDs very similar to that, like a full main collection, whatever at yeah. that time, basically. I've no yeah, idea it's... where where any of those are anymore, and I think it'd be quite difficult to. Or maybe it wouldn't be difficult. There's probably just a torrent with like every game ever in or something. There's always a main torrent. There's always a big main torrent, and it's always really well seeded. That's uh, that's my hint. <laughs> um, that is but fucking... that, I mean, in many ways, that is quite good because you know it's essential. Things it's not... will be vanished. It's, it's essential. Is what it is. Is it, it's essential because you know gaming hardware has only got a certain lifespan, and emulation is utterly critical to its preservation like utterly i saw a um a presentation a few years ago by these um uh archivist pre- preservationist type okay. people um i think they'd been invited to some big thing by jason scott who's a, a don of just preserve everything um and you should interview him actually because he's he's a deep motherfucker but um they did this thing saying look they they estimated it by like 2050 there's only going to be like 10% of the machines that were manufactured in the eighties are going to be working and there aren't going to be the component stores left to repair them. So unless someone starts manufacturing shitloads of custom chips, which is impossible, these machines aren't going to work. The hardware is not going to exist. So emulation is utterly necessary to preserve it all. Um, and also hopefully by 2050, it will be true hardware emulation as well. Not all these shortcut stuff that we have now. Um, but uh, it's like emulation is, yeah, fundamentally critical to video game culture. I think it's. I don't care that it was illegal. It's far more important than that. I wonder, like, what kids today would do, like, like the equivalent kind of teenage version of me now. Like, would they, would they even care? Because it's not <laughs> what they've grown up with. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, there, there must be a, there must come a point where I, I could give a kid like a full MAME directory, and they'd be like, what is this? Yeah, what the shit. Fuck is- I don't want yeah, this. It'd be like my dad bringing me, like, I don't know, a complete box set of. Oh, shit. I can't think of a good example, like Bonanza <laughs> or something. Or Rawhide, <laughs> the original run of Rawhide. Like, I don't yeah. care. Zed cars. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. I don't want to watch The Wire. But, um, well, it's interesting that because um, a few years ago, I just bought a Vectrex okay. uh, off a friend for 50 quid. Fucking bargain. And um, it came with um, a homebrew cart on it. Some homebrew dude had done versions of um, these games. And uh, my uh, niece and nephew came to stay in, with us in London, me and Nems. And um, they were like, what the fuck? Yeah, don't, well, they didn't actually say what the fuck. But they were like, what's that? So they saw the Vectric. I couldn't believe what a weird, exotic machine it was. And I said, it's a really old games console. And they were like, oh, what kind of games does it play? And the cartridge I had in there at the moment was uh, a version of um, Defender and Space Invaders. It's Defender and Space Invaders. And Mags, who was like 10 at the time, so he was born in like 2001. <laughs> and he was like, what's Space Invaders? <laughs> and I was like, God, you don't even know what Space Invaders is. I was like, oh, I was, I was like, oh it's like a game. It's like a really, it's one of the original games, like the original game. And I was like, put it on. And uh, obviously, they were completely enchanted by the Vector screen. I mean, like, everyone's enthralled by what a Vectrex looks like because it's so otherworldly. Yeah. But they were playing Space Invaders for like an hour. They were into it. You know what I mean? They were like, this is actually a really good game. But they saw it as old. You know, they immediately knew it was like an old version of something. And he was, after an hour, he just wanted to see Gran Turismo 5. Yeah. You know? Like, this is uh, a really good game for an antique. 
Yes, exactly. They were very kind of aware of its historical context, but they still thought it was good. And I don't know if they'd ever plough through a big MAME directory. I think if you um, select, picked out some selected gems, I think they'd still love Bubble Bobble. Oh, absolutely, like yeah. You know, I think that's still totally got loads of merit. And, um, and I think there's still a, a whole bunch of stuff. And there are games like, I mean, there are games like Defender that nobody's truly mastered. Nobody, you know, on its hardest settings. Um, and I did an interview. I did this. <laughs> I got an amazing story about how I managed to get my name in Edge magazine, printed in Edge magazine as an author for the first time. Um, Tell was that story. I, uh, well, I well, so I got the Vectrex with Defender. It's about the same time, weirdly. And I was playing the Defender version of Vectrex, and I was just like, "This is, game is fucking incredible." Because like, for ages, I hadn't really enjoyed Defender, and I knew it was like, you know, massively respected in the retro scene. And I kind of understood why, but I didn't really feel it in my bones as such. But then the control method clicked with me, and then I understood why it's so respected it's such a kick-ass game and it's like it's so hard it's like it's so vicious and savage i never really truly got on with a defender either to be honest maybe i need to give it yeah. more time it was always robotron i'd always just default and play robotron yeah. instead 100 percent. robotron's so much more alluring because it's like twin stick yeah but defender is jazz man it's it's on another level it's just beautiful that control method is astonishingly good once you know once you've got used to it it's all about the controls really and um i ended up watching these videos on youtube of this dude in sweden um playing uh defender on the hardest difficulty setting so like the, the, all the high score all the high score records are set on the factory setting which is in the middle so it's medium difficulty basically yeah and he was an old defender head who was trying to play it at the 99.99, which is like the hardest thing on the hardest ROM set, and uh, he was kicking its ass. Like, it was like obviously, it, eventually it was beating him, but like in those times where he was on fire, he was like on fire and doing stuff that, as a novice defender player, I just could not believe was possible. Like this guy is an absolute genius, and I thought, how the fuck do I pitch an article where I can get this guy? Or I can interview him and and like just talk about how amazing he's a defender. Yeah. And so I tried to pitch the Eurogame. I said Eurogame. You know, I said to like I think it was Martin at Eurogamer. I was like, have you ever done a retrospective on Defender? And he was like, no, we haven't. But Christian Donnan's got an interview with Eugene Jarvis, and he says he's going to do the greatest Defender piece ever. I know. So I was like, oh, oh I can't do it on Eurogamer. And so I kind of <laughs> called together this idea of like maybe I can like just get loads of people who are really good at arcade games and interview them all. And I pitched it to Edge and they took it. And they were like, you know, yeah, we want to interview everyone who's chasing high scores now. And um, that was where I could get this guy, Michael, into uh, into Edge. And I did in the end. And I got him into it. And it just turned out I had to interview a whole bunch of gamers. I had the Donkey Kong record holder. Um, I had this amazing girl who got Splatterhouse arcade record. Okay. And uh, the guy who's got Missile Command tournament mode high score and like all these guys, the UK's best Pac-Man player and all that stuff, interviewed them all. And um, and this guy, Michael from Sweden, and he was such a deep motherfucker when I spoke to him. And it was like, Defender has been his life for his entire life. So the level that he's playing at now takes 30 years to get to. And it was like... And he's wow. fully aware of that. He's like, he's yeah. fully aware of that. We had a break of about 10 years where he didn't play Defender at all. But what happened was he, he got into Defender, played a shitload of it, got a job, bought a Defender cabinet in like 1985 when, it, when they were cheap, played more Defender, 
and then fell out of it and then resurrected his cab like 10 years later and just started playing it hardcore again. So really, it's like 20 years worth of practice to get to be that good. What's and his name? Think, uh, I can't remember now. That's really bad. Michael, oh, that's his proper name. But I think he's, I'll send you the link, Dick. I'll send you the link of him playing it. Cause I'll he, do he, a smooth best, edit into it. The best thing about it is he's playing it with um, uh, like 80s uh, hard rock in the background. That's too perfect. And he's like, God, you're really beating the ass of Defender at his hardest. It's a beautiful thing to see. And it's art. What he's doing is performance art. It's, it's just beautiful. He's playing it like an instrument. And uh, it's perhaps not the most accessible aesthetic, but it's beautiful in its own way. And uh, oh, All of that stuff is. I mean, that's really, why the Game Slam Quick is so amazing, because it is yes, absolutely yes. like like watching a bunch of virtuosos, basically. Yeah, they're instruments. They're instruments for performance. And, I, I, and that's something that ah, infuriates me enormously when people want to go about games as art as being about stories and characters and emotional impact is like yes that can be one way but it's not the most interesting and it's not the one that's happening right now it's not the most valuable either but um to finish off the edge thing was it turned out that that issue that i had that printed in was the first issue where they gave author names to the features and so mine was the first feature so mine was the first name and i was like so proud that is a good that is a good claim to fame i was so proud i was so proud i never invoiced I <laughs> and then i recently did work for edge and i had mm-hmm. to get set up on their new system and then they fucking paid me for it because <laughs> they, and it was like oh god i never wanted to get paid for that but <laughs> stupidly stupid as that sounds i quite like the idea that i never invoiced for it but anyway um getting back to games done quick like that's such a i mean i just do not have enough time to watch it all and i love games done quick it's, one oh, of my it's amazing things, one of my favorite events I, I i love that culture it's so rich i just hate that it's so american sometimes because so i'd love to see more european games in it um especially in the retro section because it's so nes dominated i'd much rather see more 16-bit and um sort of neo geoe stuff could be in there and all that business but yeah they, they really should do that like I say they. I'm sure I could, I could do that if I wanted to, but I think that'd be amazing and a really big draw, like a proper, like European games then quick. Yeah, and I love the. Um, do, you, do you ever watch the tall assisted ones? Oh god, they're so good. They're so good, and I love the ones where they're tall assisted without glitches, where it's just pro. Like this is the proest possible way to play the game. There was one no for glitch. Mario World this year where they completed it in like three seconds, I think, <laughs> and it involved basically the, the tool was basically hitting a button like three thousand times a second and if you do that you can overload whatever and then oh, it amazing. just cuts to the end oh mate did you see the video someone posted a video about um glitching uh, mario world 64 and the the amount of game size oh yeah you can like program other games into super mario no it was deeper than this it, it was like they were talking about how many times uh no something to do with getting this crazy level warp happening in mario mario world 64 and um and then it turned out like what's actually going on in the game is so bizarre and like so kind of like alien to what you thought was going on and they were talking about this kind of like world space where the game map repeats every certain number of units the entire map like when you go beyond the boundaries of what the game presents you you're into this uncharted territory where it becomes semi-procedural and it's all just down to the way the game's logic is set up. And they kind of 
it's the way they're exploring these completely uncharted spaces to get better glitches. Uh, it was like this real kind of like journey into like a completely new dimension. And it was like, I couldn't believe what he was, he was just like, he had to do this thing where to brush up against like two edges and press the button 30,000 times. It was one of those weird things yeah. like that. And it would fling you off. It would shoot off at some ridiculous velocity. But because when you do break the rules of the game and the game's still trying to calculate the universe, it ends up falling into these weird rules. And it was saying like the um, the map is repeated a certain number of, if you take the total width of the map as one unit, then in the memory space or whatever, in the Tron world of Mario, <laughs> it's the, the actual map physically repeats every kind of, four units or something. I can't remember what it exactly was. So you have to time the jump so you travel four units in this virtual dimension to re-emerge in a real map. And so it, they say the game can present you as being in the world again, if you know what I mean. It was like so abstract and so far off. I just thought, that's so deep. I didn't think that was possible. I'm just, my jaw's on the floor, just like, this shit, I mean, this is like just Mario World. Well, what's going on in the games we have now that have got even more complex geometry and even more complex ideas of what the world is? That is that um, is actually genuinely quite mind-blowing. I hadn't thought about that. I'd never thought to kind of push that theory forward. Yeah, that game science, I think, what's it called? It's got a, it's got a, like a term, it's emerging. Um, I think it's game forensics or game science, game theory, okay. but not as in game theory. Tony, we've, done, we've been chatting for ages. What... Yeah. Um, what haven't we talked about that you wanted to talk about that you had in your head? Um, oh, there's. Uh, I'd, I'd really actually, yeah. Um, there's two I'd like to talk about. Let's do it. Um, one of them is the Dynasty Warriors series. Ah, okay. Yeah. Strictly which, Dynasty right. Warriors, or just like Muzo games no, in general? I'd, I'd like to talk about the, the latest, the, the one that I love the most. Okay. Um, which is uh, Warriors Orochi Ultimate. No, Warriors Orochi Three Ultimate. Um, which was the first game which I bought with my PS4, <laughs> amazingly. And it is just such a good game. It's so beautiful. And that whole, um, and that, like, it's been quite maligned, the uh, the whole kind of Dynasty Warriors series. But I think that when you do love them, uh, they're so beautifully configurable in terms of the challenge that you want. And that's what's amazing about them is how they allow you to have a leisurely run if you want leisure. And if you want it to be challenging and hard, it can be challenging and hard. It's your choice as the player. It's not you're not being dictated to. And Warriors of Rochi 3 Ultimate is the best at that. And it's got this incredible mode called Gauntlet Mode, which weirdly is similar to Atari Gauntlet. It's like a okay. weird translation of it into the Dynasty Warriors universe, um, where you have five, you play as a team of five, that you can hot swap between all of them. And you have to run around the maps and find an exit portal. That's basically all you have to do because um, there are loads of portals you have to stand on and activate them and then one of them's an exit um, but as you progress you get tools that make this a lot easier for you um, but what happens is is that the enemies infinitely respawn so it's not like you can clear out that you can keep fighting for as long as you want and it becomes really uh, roguelike in a kind of risk reward way that eventually the, the enemies will keep on leveling to the point where they will fucking kill you with one slash even the lowest the lowest of the low will completely destroy your health bar and then that, that is fighting at super intense level and these beautiful rhythms of that's the thing that always I always loved about Dynasty Warriors is the rhythm it gets into. 
Yeah, I, 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 I really want to love them, and I feel like <laughs> I should, and I always try, and I always end up feeling a bit hollow. Do you play through it on easy? That's the question. No, I just go in at standard. I don't really change yeah, anything. Yeah, play it on easy. If you if you really want to commit to one, get a, get one of the Orochi titles and play through it on easy all the way through. Just through one storyline on easy. That's your basic. That's like the rough work of it, really. I did Ninety Nine Nights. I love that. Uh, play yes. through Ninety Nine Nights. That was great. Yeah, the sequel wasn't so great, but the no, first one, no. I, love, I love that. And that's that Tetsuya Mizuguchi element to it as well it had some amazing maneuvers in it as well the girl was fantastic yeah with the bubble and the key and stuff like i loved all that oh the witch yeah the you're witch thinking the witch the no the key. girl what is the girl she was all red and she did uh, like she turned into a butterfly she had like butterfly wings of death that appeared and stuff okay it's fucking great but yeah warriors of watchy three ultimate it's just when you get into that full fledged and it's really it's a it's because it's one of the few games where you really feel like the game itself is really ticking away at high at like high octane because you know, yeah, it, sometimes you, I compare it to maybe like Call of Duty in full flight. You know, when it's really throwing everything at you. Yeah. And it's so rare these days in games that you feel like they're actually reaching this point where the the game's really screaming along. Um, the, the like I said, it comes down to the rhythm and the pace and the sense of momentum that you can get, and uh, it's absolutely beautiful. I love that stuff. Um, and that ties in to the other game I wanted to talk about, which is Ikaruga. Okay. Because, um, I mean, I think, you know, uh, I think Ikaruga is perhaps one of the most beautiful games to be played that there is. I think we watch someone like a pro or the, because I watched the Tazbot play it. They did Tazbot playing Ikaruga. Yeah. And um, you watch that and it's playing it at max. It's the most kind of the way it was the way everything combines in the game. So you have all the formal stuff that you would consider to be artistic, like the graphics and the sound and the visuals and stuff like that. But it's also in the dynamics of the game, the way it moves and the way the player moves and the way the, the challenges that the game presents you move. There's some incredible harmony in there that's so deep. It's so kind of almost crystalline in its beauty, this kind of clockwork machinery of it that you navigate your way through as a player. And I don't think it, you know, I, I think you only really see its true beauty when it's being played at its best, and and I think it becomes something just astonishingly gorgeous and like really sublime. Why do you uh, think you, Ikaruga specifically? Do you think it's the the sort of the, the way the color matches work, or it is down to it's down to its kind of its play with symmetry and things like that is, yeah. is part of it. And I think the the fact that the aesthetics, like the aesthetic choices in there, are so well considered and restrained because it's not a really over the top shooter really that like the palettes are quite muted um even the the big bullet storms there's no kind of um oh my god look how many bullets there's no yeah, that's yeah, not yeah. part of it and the fact that it's all split into threes like that that kind of the precision of it i think it's the fact it's like a precision clockwork thing that you become a cog in to get through and uh, it's just there's something magnificent about it which is like nobody's ever got close to i don't think i don't think any other games ever really matched ikaruga for amazingness as a beautiful game um even when they try really hard to be pretty and beautiful graphics like it's not really about the visual it's about the movement and the dynamics and the way everything works together and it's especially about the way it works as an instrument to be played so when someone plays it well it just makes this incredible kind of intellectual music it's not really 
audio but it's like this kind of music in my head of this is just working together so beautifully um i think it's really transcendent like genuinely if i was going to say to somebody what you know had you know proved to me that video games are art now i show some an expert playing ikaruga and say this is a truly beautiful performance no i i i i uh i 100 percent agree with that and yeah. it's it's really frustrating because it's a really difficult game <laughs> because of that like you can't yeah. ever live up to that level it's like watching yeah. someone as i was saying earlier it's like watching a virtuoso magician um, mu- um musician and then picking up a guitar and playing like smoke on the water or something yeah or watching lance burton doing his conjuring routine exactly yeah and you know that this is possible yeah. to be that beautiful and you just can't you can't do it but i think that's part of the under- trying to understand games as art i think is about surrendering this idea that it has to be art if you're playing it i, I like it doesn't have to, like you know i didn't paint the mona lisa so therefore you know i don't have to worry about that it can still be art you know even if you're not participating in its existence as such yeah but i think when you have to understand games as art uh, as um, an artistic form um i think you have to surrender a lot of ideas of what qualifies as art in the past because i think it challenges a lot of those ideas especially the idea that they're interactive so the player is a key component in the artistic the generation of artistic value it always is going to be so i think any game that's trying to make its artistic statement through some passive means of like my story is really artistic or my you know voice actors performances are artistic i think really misses the point it really misses the the real um virtue of games as an art, artistic form and um, and i remember the brian eno gave this amazing talk that was shown on radio 4 where he opened up the claim that a woman getting breast, breast implants is an artistic act um, because his belief that anything that contributes to culture is an artistic act. And in a way, you can, that's kind of the same philosophy I subscribe to in art anyway, in that really when a lot of people say that's not art, they're just saying that's not art as the commodity I understand to be art. Yeah, I mean, literally anything can be art it's, it's if you frame it correctly, if you, yeah, if how you, you can... want to make it, it is it's about how it's commodified and how it's formalized into yeah. being art. but really the essence of it that makes it so kind of like beguiling to human minds is completely free of that um and it's just like a blink of an eye away you know in the changing your kind of uh the angle at which you look at something can make massive differences to your aesthetic understanding of it or even what it speaks to you intellectually and that's the two cornerstones of what makes something art anyway um, it's either aesthetic or intellectual stimulation, right? And I think in games, to watch someone else who's really good at a game play a game really, really well is probably the best way to understand them as art anyway. Because um, like, I'd much rather watch you play Uncharted 4 deck than play it myself, to be perfectly honest. Um, and I think we need to start understanding games in those kind of hybrid terms, really. Maybe that's why YouTube streamers are so popular. Yeah, because it is it, it, it's the same reason you know people like watching like cookery shows and stuff. It's all just mirror neurons, and you can you can get the same. You can feel like you're playing it that way, and you're creating yes. this moment. You know. Yeah, exactly. No, that's very true. I think the other thing as well is really important. There isn't a critical language to understand the beauty of game mechanics. That's the other thing. There's no understanding of game mechanics as an aesthetic form, and I think. If you look at people that we respect massively as gaming auteurs, they often have 
incredible skills in game mechanics. So someone like Shigeru Miyamoto, who you would never deny isn't an auteur game developer like yeah. Stanley Kubrick is a director. Um, and it's because his game mechanics are so beautifully balanced. Like the, the man understands something that most people don't. And he's got a real talent for expressing it in mechanic game mechanics. But we don't have a language to say, how is that beautiful? Um, we don't really understand it in those terms. I don't think anyone's really done... I'm not sure if it's happening in, in academia, but I don't think it's really understood in those terms. And I don't think they'll be accepted as truly art until we understand the interactive design as an aesthetic form. That's really interesting. I'm going to look into that. I've got a few friends who uh, who teach and lecture game design stuff. I wonder if that is part of the... like trying to develop a language purely to talk about mechanics in, yeah. a, in a in an expressive way yes totally because i think there is some stuff most because like most of the commentary in games is all about theme isn't it it's about you're going to do a bad thing to someone bad yeah, it's not yeah. about the mechanics of doing it is it or like you know like perhaps the biggest one in recent years was spec ops right where everyone's like oh but it's all about ptsd and i had to make a really awful choice and but it's like that's all stuff that you could have done you know it could be done just as easily in film really the fact that you're playing the role doesn't make it uh, particularly unique or special i think um it's what games can provide that only games can provide is where the real magic is for me yeah and it's still just super hard to quantify yeah amazingly all right tony i reckon we've hit everything that was brilliant sorry man i just rambled no 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 that was that was really thoroughly enjoyable was that good oh, are you happy good. i'm very happy thank you very much